All right, everyone, welcome to a Sunday episode of Crypto with English. So we're going to go in a slightly different, you know, direction today. And, you know, periodically I do like to, you know, uh, shake it up a little bit and flip the script. So today we're going to focus on neurodivergence in the era of the Web3 workforce. And we're going to define and describe and go into the nuances of what exactly is, you know, neurodivergence. So I'd like to warmly welcome a special guest today, Alex Pearson. Now, she is a IO psychologist, so that means industry organizational psychologist. She specifically works with, you know, essentially corporate workforces. Uh, she's a, a uh, IO psychologist practitioner and an autistic entrepreneur and advocate. So um, this is somebody who has beyond just a mere academic uh, familiarity. This is somebody who also has her own experience, um, you know, both entailing the successes and obstacles and kind of the journey going through you know all of those things as well so we're going to deep dive into really the autism subject matter the autism spectrum subject matter because as time goes on um there is more and more awareness information and knowledge and i think a lot of things that were dismissed as maybe just being merely deficient are now essentially being changed and looked at in a much different way. And this will also change the way companies and organizations are gonna harness the talent of otherwise a very misunderstood, you know, segment of the workforce, you know, by the way, yep. which is large and broader than I think many of us, you know, would imagine. So Alex, thank you very much for coming on to the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, great intro, thank you so much. I think what we can do really quickly, I'd love to kind of define industrial organizational psychology because right. it's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. Yes. <laughs> and often when I when I bring it up, when I talk about it, people are like, what is that? I haven't heard of that before. And right. really it's a an incredible, incredible career option for people. So I'm talking about it too, especially when I'm talking to universities. I'm like, hey, if you are someone who wants to make a difference in how workplaces are organized and managed right. and run, and especially like if you're somebody who is interested in representing employee voice and employee experience, right? That's something we don't see a lot in like management consulting, right? right? And management right. consulting, you're seeing a lot of, you know, a person interacting with people at the top, making a lot of decisions, and then it's affecting people at the bottom. So what an IO psychologist does is it says, hey, let's, this is your workforce. Like we need to represent the person's voice and the person's experience, right? right? And so what can we do to design better workspaces? Um, informationally, so how the roles are defined and how much workload is within those roles, um, but also uh, well-being-wise. So how are those interactions going between employees and leaders, right? How can we yeah. make those interactions better? And how can we develop that relationship to be more like a partnership and less like a, I'm up here and you're down here and this is the divide between us, right? right. So I would say at least my angle of industrial organizational psychology is really that DEI component, that diversity, equity, inclusion component, but also right. that how can we build just better relationships with each other um, and kind of taking a, a trauma-informed approach to that, right? right. Um, so I'll define really quickly what I is and what O is. So right. they're two totally different fields. It's very, it's so, it's so fascinating. This degree prepares you for like a billion jobs. It's really good. Cool. Yeah. Um, so industrial psychology is much more of like the statistician pieces of things. So you're okay. building trainings, you're doing job analysis, you're you're defining and building selection systems that are based on science. Um, and so IO has actually just been um, now brought into STEM as, as a, it's been recognized as a STEM career wow. now because what we're doing is we're bringing research informed practice into organizations, but we're employing it through research methods. 
So we're not guessing. We're, we're, we're taking very informed hypotheses. We're measuring if it works and we're seeing what the outcomes are, right? It's very research-based, which is very exciting. Um, the organizational side of IO psychology is much more of that kind of touchy-feely component. It's that those okay. intangibles, right? So leadership development. How are we developing leaders to truly be impactful, transformational leadership, right? How are we, how are we impacting that? And how are we impacting workspaces so that people feel comfortable and confident and, and capable, right? People feel capable. And, and right. how do we include employees more in the conversation, right? Because what we've learned in IO psychology is that um, people aren't motivated when they don't have a sense of autonomy in their job. Um, right. People aren't motivated when they don't feel like they're part of something larger than themselves. People yeah. don't want to feel like they're left out of the the, the picture, right? And so um, there's a lot of different ways you can do that. And IO Psych prepares you for like so many different kinds of opportunities. It's really right. exciting. Um, so I just wanted to define IO because it's like, what is it? <laughs> you know? No, that's perfect. And so, Thank you. Yeah, totally. And like folding this idea of neurodiversity into IO is so exciting because neurodivergence is something that is so misunderstood. But as you've said, there's such a there's such a side to this that is so empowering. And to really yeah. shift it to a more empowering culture, um, you have to we have to humanize each other, right? Yeah. And what happens a lot of the time when um, what how neurodivergence empowers us to build empathy with each other is that we talk about neurodivergence as you know, everybody has different brains. Everybody yeah. has different ways that they've adapted to their environments and their circumstances, right? We all kind of have this uniqueness. We all have unique fingerprints. We need to remember right. that we all can relate to these concepts, right? Because right. if we otherize people who are autistic, if we otherize people who are ADHD, if we otherize people who have PTSD, we no longer see the humanness in someone anymore, right? Right. That's literally what stigma is. Um, and I'll just quickly plug, I just had a research paper get published in um, Zambia. Oh, awesome. Thank right. you. And thank you. I'm really excited about that. It was my first uh, my first, first, auth first authorship publication. Um, and what we did is we studied, um, we studied stigma in Zambia. Um, we studied stigma specifically of autism spectrum disorder in Zambia. And what we found is um, a lot of the struggles people have around autism are community stigma related and self-stigma related. So it's people not understanding what autism is behind a bunch of behaviors that are deemed not neurotypical, right? right? So it's really been, autism has been pathologized for so long, it's been misunderstood for so long because right. in academic literature, um, it's really all written from not only neurotypical perspectives, right? It's really hard right. to understand autism if you're not autistic. Extremely hard, sure. right? And so what's happening is a lot of researchers who have published on autism have published, uh, it's all been di a, a disorder, right? A, a behavioral disorder. And so, you know, the definition of autism is literally um, social communication deficits, right? So think about that term deficits. So we're already talking about it like it's, you know, you're right. socially defective, right? So that's what separates a right. human from a human. Right, definition already places a stigma on this. Totally. It's like, how, yeah. how else can you conceptualize that or feel it? Like, how can you have any positive feeling or understanding right. of a condition that says social communication deficits, issues with social emotional reciprocity? I mean, they're very, very harmful terms that um, that for a person who is disabled and even for someone who's not reading that, it's it's uncomfortable. Right. It's uncomfortable. Right. Um, and so it's easier just to otherwise separate, pretend it, you know, like separate yourself from it. Um, okay, so number two is this uh, restrictive and repetitive behaviors and interests, 
right? Restricted and repetitive behaviors and interests. So there's a couple of ways that, that manifests. Um, one is uh, abnormal in intensity and focus on particular subjects. So why are we calling it a disorder when people are just really into subjects they love? Right. And, you know, it seems like as time goes on, more and more scholarship has come out that, you know, perhaps yeah. some of these great people throughout history that have been widely respected yes. are highly likely to have been autistic. So this includes yep. people like, uh, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, yep. you know, and other famous physicists and mathematicians and, you know, programmers. You know, mm -hmm. it, it seems uh, there might be a great... Uh, Mis miscommunication or mischaracterization of, I think, the way autism is oh, yeah. presented. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so you hit on something really important there. You, you brought up some people that have specialties, some really incredible specialties, some really incredible strengths in these particular areas, right? And so what we call right. that is we call that um, specialist thinkers versus generalist thinkers, right? Interesting. So we, if we think about how, how school systems are set up, they're set up to produce all of the same types of people, right? It's like, we're gonna learn right. all the same subjects in all the same ways, and we're just gonna learn kind of the surface level of things and not go too, 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 too deep. The autistic right. people are often struggling in these school settings because, yeah, don't really care about this subject, this subject, or this subject, but this subject, oh my <laughs> right. God. Like, I know everything, I, probably college level, if not grad level understanding, at, you know, in sixth grade, seventh grade of some of these things. Right. Or ninth grade, 10th grade, probably a little too young there. But you know what I'm saying, right? It's that right. we have these incredible skills and talents, but the way that um, students are measured and graded, it's around this generalist knowledge, right? right. And so right. then it's, um, then the autistic child is not seen for the skills that they have and the interests that they are great at. They're seen as, right. oh, here's all of your de deficits in the school setting, right? right? And so, this sort of specialist thinking is what enables us to chart forward the future in so many of these different fields, like fields like you're talking about. And, you know, when you and I first met, we talked about how, um, you know, in the Web3 era and in the crypto era, you're like, all these people running this stuff, they're probably autistic, right? <laughs> well, I, I, didn't, I, well, I didn't characterize people as that, but it does require a very type of intense focus. And I guess you could yeah. say almost a specialist or a specialized type of um, drive and interest because most people Absolutely. that I know who are in this space they really like it and Absolutely. they genuinely make it um, kind of uh, part of their daily life uh, and, and, oh, yeah. in, and in fact in many ways I've seldom ever met somebody who's just casually interested in this so you know yeah. for me I think uh, I think it's funny because the educational system like you said, tries to make generalists out of out of everybody, yeah. so to say. But the fact of the matter is, in the workforce, um, that is that tends to be what companies want. They want yes. specialists. They want subject yes. matter experts. Right. They don't kind of want anybody who just kind of knows a little bit of everything. And you know, yep. this is reflected in medicine. It's reflected in law. It's reflected in tech. So, where do you think the systems drop the ball on that? Um. <clears throat> I'm so sorry. I was thinking of a totally different topic. I was going to say. Oh, like, okay. Sorry. I probably went down <laughs> no, a rabbit hole with that question. But... I was like, <laughs> no, no worries. <laughs> I, I just wanted to expand on something you said that sure. I thought was so important. I wanted to expand on this idea because I was, I was thinking back to your episode with Linda and Tracy, and I was thinking about this idea of creative capital, right? And, sure. and you know how they were mentioning towards the end of the episode, they were talking about how um, it's likely that 70% of W-2 jobs are going to go away, right? Yeah. And, they were talking the about how, on, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were talking about how um, what the workforce is going to be looking for, what these companies are going to be needing and looking for, because a lot of jobs are going to be automated. A lot of that, the jobs that, you know, where you would put a generalist in there that could kind of figure out something, a lot of those jobs are now going to be automated, right? Right. And so what's going to happen That's is you're, yeah. you do need these specialist thinkers, right? And you need these specialist thinkers to know their own, their own worth and right. to know their own power and, you know, to understand what creative capital is and how they fit into that sort of future of work, right? Right. And I bring this up because um, I will tell you, I'm so I'm, an, I'm a professional coach and I work with um, autistic professionals and neurodivergent professionals. Sure. These are some of the most brilliant, these are the most brilliant people I've met in my life. Like I am so amazed by every single one that I work with. None of them know that they're smart. None of them know how to put a resume together. None of them know how to describe their skill set, right? I see. And we're in a world where 75% um, of people lie on their resumes. But then you have autistic people who majorly undersell on their resumes and do not put all of their skills on their resumes and do not think to tailor it in a certain way or to, to, to map on things in the job right. description or write in extra things that they don't know. No, they're not doing that. And so we have these really creative geniuses that are not in these positions they should right. be in because of this, because of self-stigma, because of um, because we just don't know, we don't know ourselves well, and we don't know our worth. And so I just wanted to mention that because I think when we were talking about moving forward and how, how the workforce is going to change, we really need to empower these creative geniuses to understand what their, what their creative right. abilities are and how, what right. neurodivergence means to them and how, how neurodivergence, the concept and the movement can help them to find a space where they belong and right. then build up that self-esteem and build up that ability to go and get those positions that they're qualified for. Right. right. So I just wanted to, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go a different no, direction. No, not, no, not at all. So, um, so the term, I guess the proper term to use is neurotypical, right? So that is essentially yeah. the standard or the yeah. grade that you could say the educational system and both you could say the uh, workforce is built around mm -hmm. what, what is kind of the general or common way of people to perform functions and learn, yes. so to say. Yes. So, why do you think uh, autism is so misunderstood? Because, you know, if I was to look at it, you know, I would look at it. Okay, this person may just have a different way of doing things. But if it's just as effective, if not more, I think um, let it happen. You know, let's rock. Why not let why not permit and allow, you know, more of that? I mean, you know, yeah. it, it seems it seems to me um, is this mischaracterization is this really based on mere misunderstanding? Is there some sort of maybe even a resentment towards people who are uniquely talented? It makes me wonder sometimes, yeah. you know, uh, you know, so to say, is uh, are people's interferes or resentments and maybe yeah. you could even say mediocrity trying mm -hmm. to maybe stand in the way of some of these uh, individuals and maybe stop them from shining, so to say. Sure. That's a great question. Um, so. There's a couple of things we can talk about there. So number one, um, autistic people are very literal communicators, very, sure. very literal, right? So we are not, um, whereas a lot of neurotypical, okay. So the power of culture in a, in, a, in, a, um, in a particular country or even city, the power of culture is that uh, culture can kind of get everybody on the same page. It's shared beliefs, it's shared practices, right? right? There's a great there's there's great things about culture, but also there are things about culture that are otherizing, right? If you don't right. fit into this culture, if you don't do these things or say these things or act this way or believe in these things or value right. these things like I do, then then you're not part of my culture, right? And so I was actually right. just talking about this concept with my parents this morning because I was like, 
I was like, you know, I feel like, I mean, there's a whole autistic culture that is so different, right? Because if you think about neurotypical culture, and I'm just going to talk about maybe neurotypical college culture for a second, right? Um, You know, as I was pretending to be a neurotypical in college, I was, you know, um, you can't info dump about the topics you like because nobody cares or wants to listen, right? So there's one of those things. Um, You got to drink a lot of alcohol and go to all these parties to be liked. And what it doesn't even matter if I'm like, what? How are you getting to know these people? You're just like right. getting really drunk with them. I don't understand. So there's all these, these right, things right. in these cultures that it seems like everybody's participating in this stuff. And so right. where the autistic person isn't finding their personal powers, they're not realizing, okay, I, I'm not neurotypical. And it's okay right. that I have a different culture that I would like to participate in, right? right? A parallel culture, which is like, or maybe an oppositional culture, which is like, um, hanging out with people that are also very specialist in a certain thing. And we just talk about that all right. the time. Right? So I have a lot of friends where I'm seriously like deep diving into psychology topics and like existential topics with them. And that's like right. how our friendship is just a collection of these conversations. And that's, that's my preference of a friendship or maybe some of my friendships are mostly textually based. Right. So I have friends in different countries. I just text with them. Right. Right. And I'm bringing this up because it's this whole cultural versus literal communication. It's the fact that I can meet an autistic person in any country and somehow feel like I'm already there. I know everything about them. I understand right. them. We're on the same page. It's just really incredible. It's something I've learned. Um, there's this just autism culture that is so different and it just breaks across any cultural barriers in the world. I have a friend in South Africa I'm working with and it's like, we're just on the same page at all times. We understand each other. We understand each other's minds and our ways of operating and processing. And so um, I guess, I don't know if this really answered your question, but um, I think understanding like, you know, what is this social reality pattern that neurotypicals are living in? What is the social reality that they're living in? And what patterns are they following? And does that have to be my social reality? Right. right? Does it have to be? No. And so we're feeling very otherized and like we, and that's where we're losing a lot of our self-confidence and self-esteem, especially if we right. don't know we're neurodiverse because we're trying to right. push ourselves into every neurotypical space the way that we're observing it's supposed to happen. That makes sense. Yeah. We're like little I scientists. Mean, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you know, it's hard, obviously hard to diagnose or, you know, truly examine people who are already dead. But if, you know, if you look throughout history yeah. and like I said, whether you look at the like, let's say the Leonardo da Vinci's of the world, the Thomas Edison's of the world, the right. uh, Nikola Tesla's of the world, you know, these are right. people who are who would probably otherwise be considered eccentric or yes, a little yes, out exactly. of the ordinary in today's yep. society. So, you know, I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, as far as a school system and also being a parent, don't yeah. you want your children to aspire to be like that versus totally. just kind of being like everybody else? So, I mean, is are, are doing things a little different? Is that really so bad, you know, so exactly. to say, you know, yep. um, if, you know, I think if you need to do something unique to maybe better contextualize the world, uh, mm-hmm. I feel, why not explore that? Maybe yeah. why not encourage that, in, in fact? Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So, it's, it, it, so, oh, yes. sorry, go ahead. No, no, go, oh, continue. I was, you're good. No, I was just going to say um, something that can, I think, also, so some of my, okay, so my work around stigma and, and Zambia, something I learned about that is, yeah. and how it folds into the neurodiversity movement, is um, we can use this term neurodivergence, and we can talk about and I would love to define this with you right now because I'm sure some yes, people Yes, please, listening, by all means. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, I'm sure some people listening might not know what it is and that's what I'm here for. Um, so, right. okay, so <laughs> it's really helpful to, it also represents a larger percentage of the population because, you know, autistic people are 
little few and far between. There's more of us now for sure, but it's definitely not as prevalent as some other conditions, right? Right. And so what we do when we talk about neurodiversity as a concept is we can talk about the ways that autistic people relate to ADHD people, relate to um, people with anxiety, relate to, right. right? There's so many ways we can relate to each other and we can humanize the condition now when we're talking about a larger subset of the population that experiences mental health conditions, sure. right? So, um, and I will say, I am a, I am literally representative of like four different mental health conditions. So <laughs> not only am I autistic, I'm, I'm ADHD. Um, I also have CPTSD and PTSD. Um, and that is the difference there is, uh, so this is something that actually is, is changing a lot of people's lives to learn about CPTSD because we really right. haven't had a term in the DSM to, and CPTSD is not yet in the DSM. I can see people correcting me right now. CPTSD is not in the DSM yet, um, but complex trauma is. And right. what that is, is it's, it's, um, it's a different kind of trauma, more severe kind of trauma than PTSD because it's so many repeated events of trauma over a period of time, right? right. So this is, this is representative of childhood trauma or of relational abuse. Um, and sure. what we see is that um, about one in, about 66% of Americans have experienced an adverse childhood experience, right? So now we're not even just talking about neurodivergence, we're talking about just experiences with trauma in life, right? right. And you see that PTSD and autism overlap around 60% in some cases. So we see that autistic people are traumatized continuously because we don't feel that we belong. And we, there's, you know, if we think about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I'm sure you've heard of, it's the, um, right. you know, that you need, you need your physical needs taken care of. You need your emotional needs taken care of. You need like to be eating and sleeping and all these things. But right. there's this really important piece called esteem needs right? Sure. And that's like the third need. And autistic people, we're not getting there, right? right? We're not getting, we're not getting to the esteem needs because we're like, when people don't relate to a certain condition and otherize it, where's the space for us to exist, sure. right? And then it feels like right. the only space for us to exist is in a neurotypical space. And then we reject ourselves because we can't be ourselves in those spaces, right? So do you see how this can creates these continuous yeah. loops of trauma? Right. Right. No, that makes sense for sure. Yeah, totally. So, um, yeah, so I have uh, anxiety also and depression. And um, so neurodivergency, it's uh, depending where you look, you can see different percentages depending on how it's defined. But right. the one the one I prefer because I like to include mental health conditions in general and neurodivergency because right. it's just that's overlaps with everything. Right. Um, so it's around 20 to 40 percent of the population is neurodivergent if we're yeah. including anxiety, depression, uh, even traumatic brain injuries are included in there. Um, and right. uh, mood disorders like bipolar and personality disorders like, sure. um, you know, NPD and bipolar, uh, sorry, borderline. Um, when we're including all these conditions under the umbrella of neurodivergency, we're no longer looking and picking apart those particular conditions and stereotyping, right? Right. Because that's what happens. You hear um, autistic, and I think for a lot of people that don't know it, they think, oh, not relatable, like unkind or unfriendly. They're putting all these these um, these thoughts and these they're projecting these stereotypes. And this is what we found in the study in Zambia, is um, it was autism was looked down upon in the community as um, cold. It was caused by cold parenting, like you weren't a good enough parent to your child, and that's why they're autistic. Or okay. um, you know, 
<clears throat> God put a curse on your child and that's why they're autistic. Instead of really like, what are the, what are the gifts here and how do we, how do we support this child and how do we create an right. environment for this child? It's more about this child doesn't fit into this society. They don't go. So put them somewhere else. Right. Yeah. Very, very, very um, dehumanizing. It's very yeah. sad. It's very sad. And so that just creates so much self stigma and things like that. And so right. neurodivergence gives back power not only to the neurodivergent person but it helps it helps the larger audience and the larger world understand like oh my gosh yeah it's just a different way of thinking and being and processing it's a different way of processing the world it's a different way of experiencing the world it's a different background people have and we just need different supports because we have different needs right right and so when i'm consulting with individuals um and and helping them to get their accommodations and things like that people are so scared to say what their conditions are at their workplaces or to their right. friends or to their families, because they're like, if I tell my boss I'm autistic and then they go look it up online and read all these, read about all these sure. struggles I have, how are they going to see me now as a, how are they going to see me? Right. right? They're not going right. to see me or what I, they're going to project box, onto me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. They're going to project onto me all that they're reading about or all that they're seeing like, Oh, that's going to be too much work for me. Oh, nope. Right. 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 And so this word neurodivergence gives us this amazing language to just really, we're describing needs. We're describing needs, but we're also describing, this is what empowers me. These are the environments right. and the context that empower me and that empower you through empowering me, right? Empower our organization because I can deliver better work, because I can get more done, because I can right. feel better, about, right? All these self-confidence, self-esteem, all of this is related to the outputs that you're getting from people. Right. And, um, it, it builds connection, it builds community, and it builds commitment between those employees and those employers when they're seeing us as we are seeing us as people instead right. of as conditions. And I think that's yeah. the power of the word neurodivergence. Interesting. Well, first of all, I have to say that it's very courageous and bold of you to share that about yourself. And I would imagine, you know, doing that as tough as it is, I think it makes you an asset, especially when you're counseling and coaching people, because I think I think people would prefer, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, people would prefer to actually have somebody who's kind of in their corner and, uh, yeah. you know, has experience and has have some context about this, you know, versus, you know, somebody who maybe only has some kind of academic uh, familiarity with it, you know, so to yeah. say. So I could imagine you could understand and pick up on those nuances. And, yes. uh, you know, I guess you could say those, you know, slight subtle cues whether it's in behavior or in speech or things like that exactly absolutely um and i think you know <clears throat> i want to talk about for a quick second too like getting getting neurotypicals on board with everything right right so that's that's really important right because as we've talked about a little bit like we have a we have a society that's majority neurotypical that's majority constructed by by neurotypicals and so you know where people get concerned about disclosing if they're neurodivergent and getting their needs met is they're, they're, they're worried about being bat down of like, right. yeah, no, you're not going to get special treatment here. Right. Um, right. That's right. the concern that people have time and time again. And um, what, what actually Alex, the company that I started is, is working to do is um, creating these environments where neurotypicals are also getting their needs met. Right. right. And it's, it's, it's like, yes, I'm autistic and I have these particular needs because of my particular processing style, but 
you have your own particular needs too, neurotypical. You have your own right. processing styles and you have your own ways of working. So think about how, um, how much more people are benefiting from like flex work schedules, right? right. From like the, the work from home and stuff right. like that from COVID. Right. I mean, the work from home movement has opened up such a world for autistic people and they're learning for the first time that they can sustainably work if they have more choice around what times they're working and right. where they're working from. And that's, I mean, that's something that under ADA has been, you know, an autistic accommodation forever. But what's so cool is that's kind of like everybody got that accommodation for a couple of years, right? Sure. And then yeah. they learned. And so we see this great resignation and all this stuff people are learning. There's different ways to work and to be, right? right. And so it's, it's crazy. We have this perfect storm right now where organizations are, <laughs> they're, they're really needing to treat their employees like clients to keep them. Right. Right. And yeah, absolutely. And I, and I would imagine if we were to look at success rates as far as, you know, across, you know, academia and beyond, but I would imagine people that make up the top of the curve, whether it's a grading curve or otherwise, yeah. those in no way, they can't all be neurodivergent people. In fact, I would imagine it's a very, very mixed bag, you know, mm -hmm. so to say. So, you know, my feeling is um, it's probably about time to kind of discard with a lot of this uh, neurotypical, you know, model. I think if we were to look at the numbers even deeper, I think I think maybe from an anecdotal sense, I'm sure we can all remember or recall people who are, let's say, genuine experts, masters yeah. or, you know, extremely high performers in their field, whether it's in school or sport or some type of skill from my memory from people i know they were all they tend to be people who have their own method and do things a little differently i mean they could in many ways just be people who work more efficient and smarter you know than Absolutely. others so you know it kind of you know rationally it, it kind of makes me wonder um why why do companies or why is culture still holding on to the neurotypical model if in fact, if, if you want to encourage more of those extremely high performers, yep. probably it should be expanding or yeah. broadening, you know, kind of the culture to include that. Sure, sure. So a lot of the way things are is it's one of those things where it's like, oh, this is the way things have always been done. Right. right. And so the reason why organizations operate the way they do this, actually, I love it. You asked me an IO psychology question. Yay. Oh, okay. awesome. <laughs> so I love it. Um, so. Um, if, we, if we're talking about like the uh, industrial revolution, a lot of our work practices yeah. and policies were created in that time and just didn't right. change. So what happened was it was all, we were all in like these production schedules of, okay, people are literally producing tangible things per hour, right? right. So you need to have people in a, in a room for a certain amount of hours to get the amount of pro like production that you need, right? And so that's where yeah. the eight to five or whether it really used to be more like 10 or 12 hour work days. I think there was more like then, you know, workers started to say like, that's impossible. <laughs> I can't do it. Yeah. And then it was reduced to eight hours, but even eight hours, it's a completely arbitrary number. And we haven't considered too like right. how much more horsepower we have now. Right. So when we're talking about like the rise of um, computer intelligence, artificial intelligence, and um, you know, just how much more, how many more resources we have. Right. It's like we have to redesign our world now to include, like, to to account for these big shifts since the industrial revolution. Yeah, right? it's like we can't, um, we don't need to operate the same way because we have 
this technology that makes things faster and better. So why are we making, like if productivity has increased however much X hundreds of percentages, we used to have people just hand writing things and hand coding things. And now we have, sure. right? Do you know what I'm saying? Like we have ways yeah, to automate indeed. the ways that we're working to make it faster. So shouldn't humans be benefiting from that by getting a more relaxed work life and right. a more like, li like we have a liberal, more livable society now where, you know, there are going to be, you know, a lot of our jobs are going to go away and they're getting, they're getting easier because we have technology to help us. And right. so it's, yeah, it's that we have to recognize, we can't just run things the way that they've always been run. And I think what a lot of companies forget about is that you can ask your people, you can ask your people what they need, how they would like to work. Right. You can include them in that conversation. You can make it a data-based conversation so that then people sure. trust you and they can kind of have a stake in designing what the future of work looks like for them in their company. Right. Right. So there's ways that we can do this in partnership with our employees. And this is really what I'm preaching as an IO psychologist is let's start doing this on the person level. Let's, I mean, you're an individual. Let's say like right. all that I can change, I can't change the way a company runs. I can't change the way the world runs, but I can change how me and my position and my job, how that job works, how it's, how it's, um, how it's structured around me. Right. I can right. do I can do this for myself between me and my manager or within my team at a local level. Let's right. start to make change at those levels and see what kind of productivity we get out of that, right? And so yeah. that's the power of accommodation. That's the power of accommodation. It's what kinds of ways can I work and should I work? And what kinds of ways do I need information to be able to do my job the best that I can? Because a lot of organizations live in this kind of gray space of ambiguity sometimes with job design and with job descriptions. And then people just aren't on the same page, right? Right. So. Yeah. By the way, very well said. And you know, maybe uh, I think it's time society rethinks the model. I think, I think efficiency equals results, not necessarily productivity. You can be productive, but yeah. uh, not efficient, and not really get to you know where you are. You right. Know, I, I don't think necessarily sweat equals productivity. I think efficiency equals you know productivity. If you can do something better. Yeah. Why not do it that way? But uh, right. I do, you know, you raise a good point, especially regarding the industrial revolution. And I know Henry Ford of the Ford Motor Company, he was one of the biggest proponents of the nine to five day, yeah. um, you know, and I guess you could say the current work structure, which uh, has been in place for well over 100, 110 years, probably, yeah. um, you yeah. know, he wasn't obviously the progenitor or the original creator of it, but certainly one of the biggest proponents of it, you know, and that yeah. was when most society at least the labor force in big cities tended to be, you know, within factories. So, you know, it makes yep. me wonder if, you know, if our manufacturing base is gone for the most part in this country, why yeah. are we still even using, you know, that model of essentially the right. conveyor belt kind of day, you know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> These and, are just you kind know, of things some... that come to mind. Exactly. And, um, okay. So two things, number one, um, I think in tech, so the reason why tech is kind of ahead here in terms of, more hybrid working and different kinds of like you'll see um, different, very different kinds of cultures, even in the tech departments right. of big companies, right? They're, they just totally run differently. And it's because in tech, like you see people that are burst workers, right? So they, they gr can grind really, really hard for four or five hours and do two weeks worth of coding or something, right? And right. that's their way. I like that term, like, burst workers. Yeah. Yeah. Burst workers. And like just getting, and this is what we call like ND flow. Like, People who are ADHD and autistic have this incredible ability to hyper-focus. Right. 
um, especially like if it's in an, <laughs> what's so funny is like autistic people can't learn about or care about things they don't care about. But when we do care about something, it's like, oh my God, like I can do weeks right. of work in this subject because <laughs> it just all connects for me. It's that divergency in thinking. We're systemizers and we have sure. just such an interesting way of, of thinking. And so a lot of how neurodivergent people work is we're doing a lot of our planning, preparing, thinking. Like I would say I probably work like all the time mentally, but when right. I'm sitting down to actually get my product done or get my thing made, I want to have planned and thought through all of that beforehand. Like, whereas right. a neurotypical might stretch a project over two, three weeks, I'm going to think right. about it for a couple of days and then finish <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so why are we, why are we um, punishing people who, this is the thing that you said, right? Efficiency, right? Yeah. Why are we punishing people by saying, sit down in this desk for this amount of hours every day and be just as productive every minute, please. Right. Like that doesn't make sense to me. At yeah, all. especially in 2022, <laughs> this uh, yeah. it's very antiquated and it's not right. efficient anymore. It probably no. hasn't been efficient for over 20 years, in my opinion. It's not. So. It's not. And then the number two thing I wanted to say is, so we talked. You just mentioned you said the nine to five is unnatural, right? Or maybe yeah, said, it, I said that in my brain. <laughs> if you didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say it like that, but you know, but that is essentially the the theme of what I was communicating. It's right. It's not efficient. I think yes. for either neurotypical or neuro, uh, you know, divergent because we're no longer yep. a manufacturing economy, you know? Yes. So I think creating a workforce around that, especially if you're in tech or if you're in medicine or if you're in anything else, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. And I just want to bring up a, like a fun fact, a psychology fun fact. I'm sure a lot of people sure. know this, but there's that, I mean, I really had a whole class about this in, 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 in psych. So we talked about, um, like the entire class wasn't about this, but it was a portion of it. We talked about there's really like people who are nocturnal versus not. Like there are people right. who legitimately are more, like this is not, there's research and science behind it. Like there are people who are morning people, literally, right. who like do very well in the morning. Like their brain is working very efficiently in the morning and that's right. like their time and they're burned out by like 3 p.m. There sure. are people that love to work late. My professor, um, love her to death. She never takes classes before, and this is like kind of her accommodation. So I'm just I'm bringing this up because, I mean, she's 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 not neurodivergent, but she she has a nocturnal brain. Like she works so late. I get emails from her at 2 a.m. She that's when she feels very productive, and so she doesn't right. she doesn't take any courses before 11 a.m. or or n normally like 2 p.m. ish. And so then like, that's when her flow is strong. Like that's when she feels right. so hyper-connected and really like in her flow. Like why would you put her, sit her down and all the times that her brain isn't even on the juice, right? right. Because right. I'm gonna run out of all my energy and then not get into my most fruitful flow, yeah. right? Then I'll already be gassed out, let's say, before I really, you know, get good at my work, so to say. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And then <laughs> we could go into how really like the eight hour sleeping thing isn't even a thing and humans really should be sleeping like a, a little bit every four hours or something like that. There's like such different ways that- Yeah, like, and I've heard scholarship about that as well. Um, yeah. yeah, right. And sure. so it's like, why are we not account, like now we know all this stuff, why are we not accounting for this a little bit? In right. our, in our, what we spend how much time working and we're not thinking about how to, how to create like a like a great human condition for everybody, right? Yeah, it just seems like it absolutely. would be it benefits everyone. Um, but then again, Adam, it's really that yeah, this is how everything's been done. So why change it? And you know, um, going back and I'm just gonna bring it full circle here. Sure. Going back to talking about the school system, you said how would you change it? Like what would you do to make it more inclusive, right? right. Um, everything and not only are things taught in a generalist way. <clears throat> school is 
school teaches you linear and, and convergent thinking. School okay. teaches you to think linearly and to think convergently, which I mean, what I mean by that is, doesn't everybody agree on this thing? That makes it right. 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 And so that's like, is that not facilitating kind of groupthink, right? It's, it's facilitating if everybody says something's good, then it's probably right. And so right. then we lose that autonomy of thinking. We lose that divergency of thinking and that critical thinking. And I will tell you, Adam, like I was the, this is how I know I'm autistic <laughs> too. I was the student that like when the teacher would say something, I would say, well, what about this idea? Or what about this angle? Right. Or what about this thing? Right? right. And I'm sure everybody thought I was so annoying, but, <laughs> but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, that needs to be encouraged. Like we need yeah, to be talking indeed. about how to make school more divergent thinking than, than convergent thinking, right? We right. wanna be able, like, I think it's much more interesting to give students open-ended questions and open-ended tests where they're able to construct their own version of understanding or explain, because we don't wanna teach people to just be outputting the same things, right? right. We want people to feel like uh, they have this intellectual horsepower, they have their own perspective, they have, this, this different, like this fluid intelligence and this, this, this ability to think in different solutions, right? You know, because the way school is structured right now, it's like, you're, it's, it's more about, <laughs> I have a lot of autistic friends that talk about this too. It's like, you're, and you're really just taking the teacher's course of how the teacher thinks about something, right? Yeah. And in fact, <laughs> you're really kind of just regurgitating what the teacher is interested in when it comes right. to the final exam. You know, in my experience, it's, exactly. you know, it's not necessarily your mastery. It's really, what questions the teacher's going to ask or what they're particularly interested put. in. So you kind of study to what the teacher's saying, not really per se what the material, you know, is, exactly. is about. Oh my gosh. And it's exactly. And so um, just as a, as a young autistic girl, I remember in my, um, in one of my psychology classes, I, um, I was taking my test and I had studied every, like I, I just memorized everything, you know, I just read everything in the book and like, I just knew, I just really studied super hard for this test and I took it and I was like, oh, I just disagree with so many of these questions. Right. Like I didn't like the questions on the test. Right. I didn't like how they were written. And I was just, you know, instead of like I would select an answer and I'd write next to it. Um, this is really, I don't know that this is really representative of the, <laughs> like I would just right. write in my own answers because I no, was like, I, I, I why it. not yeah. encourage that? Why not encourage people to write in their own answers and to, to like, wouldn't you want that sort of debate, that healthy debate in a classroom? Like we need to be doing that more. Right? right. We need to be encouraging that divergence in opinion and like, no, it's not good if everybody agrees about something. We don't want right. to, we don't want to, you know, and if that's the, the case, then we need to make the topic a little more complex or a little bit more fruitful so that we can have different conversations about it where it's not, this is the only way to think about this thing, if that makes right. sense. Yeah. And by the way, not to get too deep into the abstract, but, you know, seldom uh, are, are things linear, you know, in life, right. you know, whether you're trying to solve some sort of, you know, global crisis, like whether it's the Russian invasion of Ukraine, if you look at the structures in our everyday life, whether it's our own DNA, it's a helix, whether it's the very cells in our body, you know, they're all systems built upon systems and, yes. you know, you know, different curves and angles and things like that. So, you know, uh, maybe one of the few linear things in life, or maybe it's like, you know, kind of your, your straight punch in boxing, but, you know, <laughs> a, a lot of things, it seems to me, are really more systems. So, you know, yes. along the lines of what you're saying, maybe teaching more divergent and abstract thinking is yes. probably going to be, you know, probably going to be very, you know, very helpful, you know? Yes, that. And then I think, too, it's um, like like good versus bad information, too, right? So right. I think it's, it's, you know, we live in an age where information is so accessible. 
we live in an age where memorization isn't really that necessary anymore. Like that's something right. that has also really changed the way that the world operates and can operate, right? Like the fact that yeah. you can Google anything and learn how to do anything by yourself. Yeah. Like that's pretty yeah. nuts, right? And I think that- The autodidactic, right? Yes, autodid there it is, autodidactic. Yes. That's another feature of autism. And then another feature is eidetic memory. We can talk about yes. that in a second. I'm write that down because sure. we should definitely talk about that. So fascinating. Um, but, um, Shoot, what was I saying? What were we just talking about before? I um, eidetic, and then we were going to go go into, go into autodidactic memory. Autodidactic, so. yes. Okay, yes. so autistic people, um, and this is this is another way that that schools and organizations really just have to be more inclusive and in, in design. It's called universal design um, because you know when we're thinking about autism specifically and auditory processing issues, right? Um, yeah. Autistics are often autodidacts because we don't, we learn so differently. We just have to create our own way of learning because right. we like the, the common way of teaching the lecture format. Is it, is that really the best way of teaching? Right? right. So that's one of the other things is, you know, I was a student who had like, I mean, I even still struggle with, with verbal processing on the spot. Like I, my learning and my understanding of situations and conversations happen days or weeks later. It's really funny. Like I have such delayed processing. I don't really ever know like what happened until I've- But like, I would imagine really you caught. probably have uh, superior, so to say, processing in other ways, you know, totally. so to say. So, you know, I'm kind of wondering, so what is the chemistry of the brain, I guess you could say, versus neurotypical versus yeah. neurodivergence? Like totally. um, is, there is there like a different distribution yes. of like gray matter or, or things yes. like that? There is, there are some differences um, for autism. So I'll name a couple of them. So number one, um, increased white matter and gray matter connectivity okay. and increased, um, and that's just more, more and more thoughts, more and more often and faster. Right. Um, and then we also have um, an increased, uh, increased connectivity between our left and right hemisphere. So our corpus callosum is thicker um, than average. And so information is able to travel between both sides faster as well, which is very efficient, wow, interesting. very efficient, um, yeah. very efficient. But but the, the downside of that is um, we process more information sensory wise, right? And so right. a lot of, you know, a lot, this is something that really is coming to the forefront of autistic discussion. It's right. really a difference in our sensory experience, right? We're processing more information, not only verbally and informationally, and th our thoughts are all over the place, we're having more thoughts, um, but like we're hearing sounds more clearly we're, we're like visually we're seeing more like it's just it's it's so much input that like that's what causes our shutdowns and our meltdowns and our frustrations and things is right. that we're getting too much information all the time and it's too right. loud and it's too smelly and it's too <laughs> it's too many different <laughs> right. things all at once right. and it can be really overwhelming um so that's that's some of the differences there it's really fascinating um and you know there's a great book i can just plug really quick um it's yeah. called a field a field guide to earthlings <laughs> really fantastic. I like it's the title. written by an autistic guy. And um, he talked about this as one of the, this was the very first thing he talked about in the book. And you know that there's sometimes those books that you get and you just like read a concept and you're like, I'm mind blown. Like, right. I can't even finish this yeah, book right yeah, now because sure. I need to percolate on this one concept. And, you know, the first concept he covered was um, the ways that neurotypicals filter that, that autistics don't. Right. And so he explained something really interesting. He said, um, he said that neurotypicals convert their environment all into symbols. And so that 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 makes it much more efficient okay. for them because then they're not having to process everything. They're just only processing the thing that matters right now, okay. right? 
And so what I mean by that is say there's, uh, you know, you're walking down the street and there's um, a, you're walking by a big speaker, right? Maybe outside of a restaurant, it's really loud. And then there's a truck yeah. going by and then somebody's talking to you at the same time. For an autistic person, right. I'm not going to be able to talk or hear that person at all. Like that is way too much information. Right. Um, my brain is not filtering. For a neurotypical person, their brain naturally filters out that noise and, and converts it. Right. That's a truck. I don't need to worry about it. That's just a right. sound. Don't need to worry about it. So their right. brain is doing that for them. We don't have that. <laughs> we do not have that at all, any of that. And so it's what causes a lot of our stress and executive dysfunction is, yeah, it's so loud. It's so noisy. There's so much going on. And that's why we need these accommodations. Like we need our sensory environment to be predictable. We need our day to be predictable. Right. We need to have some semblance of understanding about how things will go and when. And that's why yeah. we like to plan and prepare. And we're usually very organized people because yeah, we need to have all that in place because we're gonna be really overwhelmed if we don't have something to grab onto and hold on to, right. um, which is like a way something might go, some things I might be able to say. That's why we do a lot of planning and preparation just around what we might say in a conversation or what right. we might talk to someone about because once we're in that situation, we know we're gonna be so overwhelmed and we're gonna need to revert to something we've planned <laughs> to right. get us through it. And by the way, yeah. so what do those accommodations include for neurodivergent individuals? Oh my gosh, yes. Let me pull, okay, let me just pull up my list, okay? Or I can just name off a few. I'm gonna name off a few. Whatever's okay. easier. <laughs> okay, so, um, Number one is like in a job. So we're going to talk about jobs. So in a job, maybe some structural accommodations, right? And so the way I've right. written my accommodations list, and I just want to give you an inside tip here. Sure. The way I've written my neurodivergence accommodations list is I'm thinking about business outcomes and I'm thinking about um, how to explain, like in, in the way I'm framing it, I'm thinking about how can I explain this through the lens of productivity, well-being, right? What is this? What outcomes are these going to right. include? Because right. In businesses, you know, they need to, they're very motivated around business outcomes. And usually you get your way faster if you're talking about it being a business outcome too. Right. Right. I can imagine. Um, yes. And so um, in IO psychology, often what we're doing is we're, we're coming into businesses and we're figuring out how to, how to build more structure and more predictability into pieces so that people know what they're doing. Right. Right. And so I'm thinking about this um, from the perspective of IO, but these are all things that everybody needs, but that neurodivergent people super super duper need right? right so let me pull up my list and i'm gonna just read a couple from each one and i think that way we can get like a holistic perspective of like all the different ways yeah that's great okay so here we go give me one second here okay all right so number one okay so number one would be um visual supports so providing right. people templates of forms and documents providing a like a workflow potentially like like working right. together to create a, a visual workflow of like right. this happens then this then this then this right something that, so these things aren't expensive like that's not an expensive or hard thing to do with an employee right. sit down with them i and think make that sure should be basic them. everywhere you go to be exactly. honest <laughs> there exactly. should be a workflow there should be templates you know it saves exactly. time it keeps right. everything organized yeah. Right. So what's so funny is, right. So you say, I present these things and I talk about these things. Many people don't, don't have access to these things and the business leaders. So I did a, I did a talk with SHL in um, UK and I was talking to the corporate strategy manager at the very end. And he said, yeah, we need to just be doing all this stuff. And I was like, see, yes, exactly. <laughs> so it's like neurodivergent people are maybe more visually and like more obviously distressed at their job, right. but neurotypicals have got to be distressed too. They're just hiding it better. 
right? Yeah, I would imagine, yeah. Yeah, sure. yeah, and so that's why a lot of these accommodations, I'm like, yeah, neurodivergents need this, but neurotypicals, when they see this list, they're like, please, 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 me too. Please, 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 right. me too. Okay, so. Well, let okay, me ask you something. Are neurotypicals yeah. more comfortable with, let's say, chaos or disorganization? I don't mean to characterize this in a negative yeah. sense, but do, let's say, neurodivergent, there's a greater need to have that yes. organized or systemized. Yes. Otherwise, it's just too distracting, you know, yes. so to say. Okay, yes. Let me, okay, I'll jump right back into the combination, but I'm going to answer your question. Because right, yeah, yeah. Sorry. A great point. No, 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 no. That's a fantastic point. Um, that's actually something that's in the field. We had to Earthlings book. It answers this question. I'll have to check and it out. It talks that about, yeah, you really definitely should. It's super cool. It's really funny too. It's hilarious. Um, okay, awesome. so um, it's called, so the, the way that we talk about this, it's the, it's the forest versus the trees thinking. Right. Right. So autistic people. Um, so neurotypicals are very are, are much more comfortable with um, having just kind of a broad outline of something. Right. And having there be ambiguity and they're comfortable not really exploring that ambiguity. Right. Um, neurotypical neurodivergence are like, I'm not comfortable with this ambiguity at all. And right. I don't I'm not going to accept what you say is the forest view until I've explored every single tree in that forest. And I understand what makes up that forest. How does it work? How does it operate? It's that systems thinking, Adam. It's that right. autistic people are naturally systemizers. There's literally a test that I took for my autism diagnosis called the systemizing quotient. Right. Um, and the way that this plays out for autistic women, I'll just say quickly, is autistic women tend to be people systemizers. So if you're an autistic woman and you're a people systemizer, please get an IO psychology degree because you're perfect for it. <laughs> right, right. Right, we're just naturally, we think of things in systems, we wanna break things down to their most, like strip them down to their fundamental truths to understand right. them. Um, and really that's something, that's a way of thinking and a way of processing that should be taught. Like Absolutely. that natural way that we do things, it's like, like you're saying, shouldn't we just encourage more of this kind of being and thinking, right? Right. And like you said, it could be partially what you mentioned earlier, our neurotypicals now concerned because it's a competence difference, right? right? Is that something that people are concerned about? Maybe. Right. Right. Maybe. Um, right. But yeah. So forest versus the trees. Um, okay. So really quickly, let's go over a couple of the other accommodations. Sure. So again, like everybody should have flowcharts and like should know what the steps are and tasks that they're supposed to complete. Like what are the pieces versus just kind of giving somebody a broad and ambiguous large project. That's something that happens a lot to people. They're given like a pretty ambiguous project without a starting point or without like some right. guidelines. And especially for an autistic person, like we have got to make sure that we're on the same page as our managers or like we will go and create something totally different from what they might think because of our divergent brain. Like if they right. if we don't get boundaries or clear a clear sense of direction, like we're gonna go a lot of places with that assignment and it might be very different from what a neurotypical would expect, right? right? And so that's what happens a lot of times in, in these situations where there is um, some distress between an autistic person and a neurotypical manager. It's, yeah, the, the autistic person needs these these clear boundaries and these clear ways of, okay, what what are you really expecting from me and how do I get right. there, right? right? And that's something that just everybody should have and that would make for much better and more efficient processes and more efficient products in the end if we were right. more clear. Um, so it's this clarity thing, like people aren't being clear. So, okay, structural supports now, the, the structure of the, the position. Oh, by the way, just to add quickly. Sure, um, yeah, go you know, ahead. These points make sense to me. And even beyond that, some very, very notable companies across the world, that's how they yeah. do business, whether it's like Toyota or BMW, yeah. um, you know, Germany and Japan respectively, they have all these processes 
outlined in very, very clear detail. Yep. And, yep. you know, hence that's why, you know, they are essentially the top of the game um, yes. in, the, in the auto industry. So, you know, both, you know, both Toyota and BMW, um, they have such a streamlined, efficient process where everybody is very clear of the expectation oh, yeah. each, each part of the way. And this goes from the way Beautiful. you assemble your desk, the way yep. you organize your desk, and the way that the car is essentially built on the, on the assembly line. So, you know, it kind of makes me wonder, um, are, are certain aspects of neurotypicality kind of shitting the bed for everybody? Because totally. you know, if, I, if I look at, no, I mean, to be honest, I look at efficiency and kind of what you're explaining, these really shouldn't be looked at as accommodations. In fact, I think a lot of these should <laughs> right. be looked at as the standard, you know, so yes. to say, you know, um, yes. having a workflow, having templates, you know, I think, yeah. I think we can all point to examples of yep. inefficiency at maybe companies we may have worked at in the past yep. or individuals and, you know, um, not having templates, not having workflows, kind of like this comfortable confusion everybody has in the room. Yep. And, you know, uh, I, I don't think that should be looked at as an accommodation. That should probably be a, uh, that should be a deliverable. That should be, uh, <laughs> should a be kind accepted. of a, a, the bare requirement, have yep. workflows, have templates, have yep. a clear idea of each step of the way because it's good to ask questions. But you know, could you imagine how much time you'd save if everybody had those type of tools on hand? Exactly. You know, so exactly. And so you can see now too, Adam, like as we're going through this, how this really can bridge a relationship between neurotypicals and neurodivergent people, right? right? Because these are things that would just make everybody more successful at their job right. and more right. comfortable and more and like, it's just, here's the thing though. It's like, Neuro, neurotypical people are much better at compartmentalizing than neurodivergent people. Like neurotypicals sure. can leave their job at their job, right? So I, I worked with somebody before that like literally wouldn't take his computer home and like just at 4.30, it was just like, don't even care anymore. You know, and right. I was like, I can't even conceptualize a life like that. Like I care so much about my job. Right. Like I've, I, and I, I just was somebody who like, I took my computer home and I worked a lot and all these things. And, um, I forget what I was going, what was I trying to say there? Hmm. It was about what you were saying, but um, it's this culture. Okay. It's this, this difference in culture. I want to go back to what you're talking about with Asian culture, because you brought up a really good point there. Oh, with uh, Toyota. Yeah. With Toyota. Yeah. And yes. so we see, we see on IQ, on measures of IQ and all, all these different kinds of measures. Um, the, the Asian Asians tend to score one to two standard deviations above Americans on things. And sure. it's the same with Jews. I'm also Jewish, by the way. It's the oh, same okay. with Jews. So Ashkenazi, especially like Ashkenazi Jews have right. generally higher IQ. And it's, you know, they also have more autistic people too. A lot of autistic Jews. Um, and so- Also, I believe the most Nobel uh, Nobel Prize Nobel Prize as well. Yep. So Absolutely. yeah, I've, I've come across some of the research that you're, you're talking about. So yeah. Yes, yes. And so it's this, um, and like you're saying, it's when we're comparing the cultures, it's like really it's autism as a culture and, and it, we're seeing these cultures that are more efficient, like you're saying about it. it's It's like, yeah, it's like the autism culture, right? So right. we can think of autism as almost being a set of cultural practices instead yeah. of like deficiencies in a human being, right? It's like, right. we're just, we have totally different cultural practices in the way that we speak, oh, the way we communicate. Yeah. Yeah. The ways we communicate, the way we speak, the way we interact with the world, the way we experience the world. These are all just differences in our culture and our experience. Um, and so... I just wanted to mention that because, um, yeah, I think I think when you talk about the, the things in Ju Judaism and the things in Asian culture, it's like these are all cultural right. practices. And that's right. why we're seeing that, you know, they're prioritizing clarity. 
right? Prioritizing right. process, right? right? And and so we can take away things from that culture and integrate that into our culture. It's just their yeah, culture. You know, to be honest, that's probably not a bad idea. And in fact, you know, growing up, for a lot of my friends who were attending Hebrew school, uh, you know, growing up, you know, the the actual you could say academic brain power required for those weekends was very, very intense to say the least. So imagine you're yes. starting that at like five, six, seven years old. Uh, yes. I think it makes you very, you know, well suited as far as, you know, kind of adapting that type of lifestyle into, you know, um, you know, graduate school and, you know, greater, you know, professions from that. And I will say, um, this is anecdotal, of course, but, you know, for my friends who were attending Hebrew school growing up, um, it was this open dialogue and deep, intensive questioning was always encouraged because, you know, when I was a kid, when I would go to like, you know, let's say Sunday school, whether I was getting my communion or something at the time, you know, growing up Catholic. And then my, you know, Hebrew, my friends who were Jewish, they just came back from Hebrew, Hebrew school. It's like, okay, so we both had a, a crazy weekend, you know, just studying, but, you know, and we'll tell each other about it. But uh, one of the things I definitely picked up from uh, my friends who were going to Hebrew school over the weekend it was essentially like doing almost the equivalent of college classes on the weekend when, yeah. when you're a kid. So, you know, oh, especially yeah. like learning Hebrew, learning yep. the insides and outs of like, let's say the Talmud and the Torah. Like it's very, yep. it's very, it's you know, it's, it's very high level. Yeah. And especially when you're starting as a child doing that, Yeah, it's, I can only imagine uh, the benefits to be reaped, you know, later on totally. in life. Totally. And like that increased vocabulary and that, that work ethic. Right. All that stuff. I mean, it's so critical. It's so critical. Right. And it's so exciting to see that, you know, I, I love seeing autism being described more as a culture and as practices because it's it's helping us to also bridge our differences with our friends and things like that. And it's helping Absolutely. us to understand how to explain ourselves in a way that's non-pathologizing. Right. right. It's helping us to understand that there are just different ways that we live our life that we don't need to compare and say this is better or that's better or this is, you know, there's just people have different social preferences and that's okay. And right. I think, you know, one of the number one things, um, one of the number one things is that, um, you know, like one of the, the, the criteria for autism is this like right. deficit in communication and this social emotional reciprocity issues and things like right. that. It's like, yeah, we can, we can disprove that really quickly because um, like, if you just watch two autistic people talk to each other, no issue in communication no issue right. in understanding each other, no issue in empathy or perspective taking. So if somebody was really deficit in communication and deficit at reciprocity, would they be able to, that would be applied across every context, wouldn't you say? Right, yeah. Right? For sure, so, yeah. So I just wanted to mention that um, and say, like, it's just, we have social, I, I love reframing it as social cognition difference, different right. ways in thinking about socializing, more direct communication, you know, right. just different ways of being. And so as we start to talk about autism as a culture, I think it helps people who are neurotypical yeah. enjoy that about us and kind of help to embrace that. I mean, my friendships have gotten so much better since I've just been more autistic outwardly, sure. like being more autistic, saying more of what, like not filtering myself so much so that I'm, I'm shaping myself to be a different person. It right. helps me if I can accept that my autism is my culture it helps me love myself. Right. It helps me explain myself. It helps me support myself. But if I'm thinking of autism as a disordered condition, how, like, where does somebody go from there? Like, right. what, what's the path? Right. And I have a question. So growing up, um, did you um, attend Hebrew school as well? 
Totally, yep. Tuesdays okay. and Sundays. And, and uh, which side? Sundays. Is it just mom or dad or both sides of the family are, are Jewish? Um, my my grandma's side is Ashkenazi, um, and I have I, I have two moms. So my dad's out of the picture, but I have two moms, and we're we're all Jewish. But yeah, it's it's both of my moms, and I was raised like very deeply in in Hebrew Jewish culture, and I yeah. did my trip to Israel, and like I did all that kind of. So stuff. So you went to birthright, and you know, uh, yeah, uh, yep. okay, all right, got yep. it. I did all the things, and I will say, like you know, they're definitely. I mean, Jewish culture is is very intense and it's very um it's very like scholastically focused and so you find yeah. that like i don't know there's just so many i feel like there's just so many autistic jewish people and i'm just thinking about them it's like yeah i mean we just and, and that's why i'm like is it a cultural practice somewhat too like well, that was going to be my follow-up question because if yeah. you look at the amount of achievements whether right. it's in whether it's in you know mathematics tech yeah. right. entertainment i mean right. there is a very high disproportionately high amount of overachievers yeah. you know from you know from essentially the jewish community in the united states so i kind of right. wonder growing up you know let's say going to hebrew school and you know growing up jewish is there kind of a more is there more of encouragement as far as this kind of abstract out of the box divergent oh, thinking yes. because you know Beautiful growing up question. yeah because you know even growing up where you know my neighborhood was mostly italian and jewish growing up it does seem like that you know, uh, the kind of the, the, yeah. the creativity that's encouraged, whether it was yeah. hanging out with my friends and, you know, going out to dinner with your folks and whatnot, um, you certainly felt it. I don't know if there's a tangible word for it, but it, there was a certain vibe, maybe. Oh, yeah. I, um, I totally, I totally yeah. can answer this. So um, Jews are taught to question everything. Throughout time, right. people have tried to convert Jews to all kinds of different things, right? Oh, yeah. Right, they absolutely. They had to stand in their beliefs, even if they weren't allowed to read their scripts, right? I mean, this was right. something that happened to us often, time and time again. Um, and so we we're taught from a very young age this practice of questioning and this this whole, you do not believe things people tell you. You do not believe things people tell you. You do not believe things. <laughs> I like that, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally. Literally, right. <laughs> like my rabbi straight up was always like, well, do you believe in God? Right. It wasn't like, no, it wasn't like you have to do right. these things and believe these things. It was like, it was always like a critical examination. And I think this is what you're speaking to. It's really Yeah, my friends at Hebrew school tell me like these things, they challenge yeah. the rabbi about different things. And Truly, you're like, oh, totally. wow, that's, that's pretty bold. I got to say, you know, yeah. some of the questions that are kind of discussed, you know. Totally. It's very, very deep. And also, yeah. you know, Judaism is like the hardest religion to convert to because like they don't yes. want people to convert. <laughs> Right. Like, it's actually quite the opposite as far as other things. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. I've had I've had two friends who converted yeah. and there was a period of time. And by the way, I don't know the specific details or names, but there's essentially a certain certain time period where you kind of have to continuously be rejected before you kind of yes, start the three times. The, you have to be rejected. Okay, three, three times, times. Okay. Yes. yes. And I want to revise. It's not that they don't want people to be Jewish. It's that they don't want people just to join something to join something. Right. And so I, that's I something that's that. very <laughs> different about Judaism from some other religions that are more like right. encouraging a lot more people to join. Like proselytizing right? and conversion. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. And if you think about some other religions too, like there's a lot of this is how things are. This is what you need to believe. Right. This is what, and it's very, it's that group think and that conformity. And like right. Jews understand that that level of group think and conformity is dangerous, very dangerous. I mean, right? This is very practical. Everything you're saying makes sense, <laughs> you know, from, you know, from, you know, from, uh, you know, Hebrew school and uh, kind of some of the underlying philosophies in uh, Jewish culture. I mean, 
Totally. This is very yeah. practical. It's extremely <laughs> so, practical. It's like, yeah. raise your hand, like disagree, ask questions. And these are also all the practices that make up, I'm just realizing this right now, these are all the practices that make up um, psychological safety. So yeah. people in environments where they're conforming a lot usually don't feel psychologically safe enough to raise their hand right. and disagree because they're afraid, oh, I'm going to look, I'm going to look different. Right. And so people who are raised Jewish and autistic people too, it's like, you're already like pretty different, <laughs> you know, like you already have like a very, very right. um, rigid thought process and rigid ways of critically examining things. Right. Right. And so you're much less likely to be, you're much more likely to be an innovator and much less likely to be conforming. Right. And so you see in Judaism, yeah. you see in Israel, Israel has the most startups per capita of any country in the world. Very, wow. very innovative people. Oh yeah. 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 That's On my awesome. birthright trip, that I makes sense. That. I yeah, do. Yeah. I, I have heard of the extremely high amount of startups, but it doesn't surprise me that they're number one. Yeah, so, it's nuts. <laughs> it's absolutely sense. nuts. It's so crazy. Yeah. And so I would say it goes back to this: these cultural practices of disagreeing, of not conforming, of what's what. What does this mean? What can be done? What can be better? Right. I mean, I think. Right. I think it, it also comes from a long line of, you know, Jews have been traumatized and oppressed for all of time. And right. there's a long line of trauma throughout our, our generations. And so we've, you know, it, there's distrust in that. And I think, right. um, I think what beauty is born out of that is I know my worth, I know my rights, I know my beliefs, right. I know my, you know, and like, no, I'm not gonna just say something so that everybody likes me. I don't, you know, that's right. not something that is like a Jewish yeah. practice. <laughs> at all right right Jews right. are very eccentric kind of funky and like silly like they're just wonderful it's just wonderful very and like true in themselves and things like that that's awesome yeah yeah it's yeah especially growing up here I can definitely um I can definitely see that I think that's I think that's wonderful uh, to totally. say the very least so it seems like it seems to me this kind of made you better equipped to go into these waters of uh psychology you know having I think yeah. you know the almost you could say the childhood academic preparation totally. for a lot of this <laughs> yeah. and then kind of coming you know and if also if the courage if the i'm sorry if the culture encourages this type of creativity which we clearly see like whether it's in science you know um entertainment various aspects of tech um yep. it's it's very good preparation i have to say absolutely you know, without a doubt oh i'm so grateful and i will say at the time i was so pissed i had to go to so much extra <laughs> school i was pissed. right <laughs> I can but imagine back, when you're a kid. Yeah, but looking back, like I really do feel like I was challenged so much more in that setting than I was in a school setting. Absolutely. Right. I feel like I was really much more like rigorously challenged. And so because I was challenged in that way, Judaishly, I don't know, Ju Jewishly, but <laughs> also um, or, yeah. <laughs> but also like autistically. Sure. I think that combination of like me being autistic and raised with this questioning practice. Right. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna constantly Alex, you still there? Did we lose you? And I, oh, am I still here? Oh, yeah, sorry. yeah. It seems okay, like you kind of uh, cut out for say... a second. Well, uh, looks like you're back. Sorry about that, but but just you yeah. know, uh, just comparing like autistic and Jewish practice, I was saying um, that I I'm just much less likely to conform, and I'm much more likely to to say. You know, hey, there's there's yeah. many, many different ways of thinking about things, many different perspectives here. And then you don't get stuck in the, the cycle of, you know, nothing's right. changing in my life. Nothing's happening because nothing I'm not thinking differently. Right. It's that right. It's that cycle. And I think we can teach people how to do this. I think we can teach yeah. people these practices from a, a young age. So it's just really common. And then think about how much better workplaces would be and friendships would be if like 
we could really truly be authentic because we have an authentic identity. I don't think, yeah. I think if we're not raised to have an authentic identity of like, I can think for myself, I learn how to examine things. I learn how to say right. no or to disagree and that's good. I think that has to be something that's really instilled in childhood of like, yeah, say, like you do not have to conform. Like right. say, say different things because we get better products that way. We get better solutions that right. way. You know, I mean, it really benefits everyone, truly. Right. And I have to say this, um, you know, growing up Catholic and go to Sunday school, I definitely don't remember anybody arguing with the nuns during <laughs> Sunday school. I definitely don't remember that. <laughs> that seldom happened <laughs> from my memory. But um, I, I did hear about my friends going to Hebrew school and arguing with the rabbis. So I kind of always thought that was pretty cool. Like, yes, oh, it's so nice. neat. It's so neat, right? It's so cool. Right. It's just, it's, yeah. And so it's like, young autistic people we've already we already have these these brains that are kind of equipped to do it and we just need the cultural practices to be reinforced around us right, right. such that we can we can float we can fly we can be free we can be ourselves we can feel limitless i think it, it's just it's just funny it's like the, the people that are so equipped and so um uh really can be game changers and kind of be these um you know there was a there's some research i read adam about um how to create more psychological safety in workplaces and right. one of the one of the suggestions was um, to to hire people into a workspace that would create that environment naturally, and <laughs> I thought that was really interesting because I was like, yeah. oh my god, I can't even think of a workplace that I've been in where I didn't change the way people were doing things because I was like, why right. wouldn't you think of this or why wouldn't you do that or like raise my hand and said, I don't know, because I didn't, you know, and I think maybe the rabbis reinforced that too. It's okay to disagree with your that's leaders, awesome. right? And yeah. that's something that I think it can be harmful in workplaces. Is Right. It's made, you're made to feel like this person is the boss. And so they, they, they have, they're the end all be all. They know everything. I can't disagree with them. I can't suggest yeah. a different solution. That just hurts everybody in the situation because things don't get better. Things don't improve. Right. And, and right. we're not, yeah. And we're not really working together to improve things if we're not able to speak our truth or right. to speak up about a different idea or a different process or anything like that, right? And so right. <laughs> it's like organizations that really wanna be on the cutting edge of this, they would they would be like, oh my gosh, I need to hire autistic people because um, as I bring them in to, to be part of these teams, um, we're gonna naturally influence the team to be more authentic. Right. And I've seen it, I've literally seen this happen in my work, like really people become more authentic and feel like they can be human at work when somebody else is doing it. I mean, it's that that right. mirroring and that social modeling is so important. It just right. takes bringing one person into an environment that shows everybody, yeah, there's a different way to be here. And then right. you can see massive change happen just from that, right? It's incredible. Right. Yeah, yeah, by the way, just to kind of throw a little bit of my authenticity here, I didn't find out I had ADHD until much later in life, but I will say um, I kind of always had a feeling uh, growing up. I've always had my own processes yeah. Um, that were much different than, you know, many of my other, you know, uh, classmates. So um, the intense, I guess you could say, bursts of energy, you know, um, I've had that. So being able to kind of kind of deeply immerse yourself into kind of mastering or studying something, but then also the kind of the accommodating, uh, I guess you could say, the preceding burnout from that, too, um, yes. is very, Good very, point. very, um, is a very real thing. So, um for me, growing up had always been a process of creating systems yeah. uh, you know, for myself. So kind of once, once I had a system mm -hmm. and mind you, this was like, you know, early to mid nineties. So there wasn't a whole lot of maybe understanding in a lot of this stuff, but you know, 
Um, once I think I was able to kind of uh, feel good in my own skin about it, um, yeah. it, it allowed me to overperform and hyperperform, you know, yeah. against kind of, you know, uh, some of my peers. But, you know, don't get me wrong. It, def it definitely felt like a certain sense of otherness, you know, to, you know, to say the, you know, to say the very least. So, you know, there'd be times where, you know, I could just, you know, pick up something immediately and, you know, piss off my teacher and, you know, maybe, <laughs> you know, cause resentment from some of my classmates. But then there's been times I would just like really struggle because it's like, okay, I have to do it this way. This is driving me nuts, you know, yeah, you, know yeah. you know, type of thing. So, um, so, you know, learning to kind of, you know, navigate those waters. One of the things I had to pick up on was how to regulate energy because my first, yes. my original instinct was to go with sixth gear on everything I, I did. So to Absolutely. say, so yep. even I though let's say I could do, too. I could do those things, but then later it, it, it almost feels catatonic, just the amount of, you know, recuperation you need. Um, afterwards so right. that was one of the first things you know i kind of uh you know had to learn so you know some of the things you are mentioning um i could definitely you know relate you know and understand and you know your example about the trees um you know having a bird's eye view of the forest is great but um i am one of those people i need to know uh, yeah. what every tree looks like and yeah. what like, animal is on every tree the forest is right huh? You're like, yeah. I don't want to take your word for what the larger force. No, is. because I'll, I'll be honest, before. it feels I, I I get a sense of unease from it. Uh, yes. to, be, to be very honest, right? so yeah. if yes. I don't know what the rest of the forest looks so like, I kind I kind of obsess over it. I'm like, okay, well, what does the rest uh, what does the rest of this actually look like? And if I don't yeah. know what the rest of it looks like, um, then it's just going to kind of cause me to uh, I don't know. Uh, it's going to just cause more overall, you know. Uh, frustration, so to say. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I could certainly relate to some of the things you, know, you, you were speaking, and that probably is the source of a good chunk of my questions, totally. um, you know, as well about this. So, yeah, I mean, the, these things, uh, these topics and these issues you pointed out, they're, you know, very, very helpful. And I think encouraging, you know, some of these uh, neurodivergent, you know, systems of thinking totally. um, should be uh, should be encouraged, you know, a lot more to you know to say the very least so yes yeah <laughs> agreed agreed yeah but that's a little but yeah that's yeah. a little page from little page from you know uh from my book anyway but i would say if i was to compare it if i don't manage the energy because it, it kind of feels like this it kind of always feels like having a surplus of energy yeah and you need some way to direct some of that energy totally. so to say so totally. for me it's like if i don't have a, an aim or a direction to to kind of aim or you know yes. kind of uh, direct that energy towards to right then that causes kind of a little bit more frustration so having to know what every tree right. looks like that that would be an example of like okay i need to direct this energy this curiosity you know towards this um right. you know some of the other things i i do like uh you know i constantly have to let's say exercise uh, yes. because that is actually kind of what kind of you know cools that's a off great the emotional energy regulator yeah actually, yeah cools off important. you kind of cools the engine because otherwise i just feel like i have a very hot engine all the time oh so totally. so totally. for me um that's energy, one of the only ways you probably can turn your brain off too right is when you're right exercising. right so you know for me uh energy regulation is kind of one of the things i learned as far as okay yeah. how do i make this more efficient because otherwise it's just kind of if the engine's too hot and it's gonna yeah. you know it's gonna end up kind of stalling so yes. Um, yes. so that was, you know, one of the, one of the things, you know, growing up and even till now, like you, it kind of just took constant self-knowledge, 
in practice, you know, around that. But uh, it also became an asset, and I, yes. and, you know, over time, and that's how I, that's how I looked at it, you know. Yes. Um. So you know, I think Beautiful. whether it's whether it's autism or ADHD, I'll say this. Um, if you if you know how to kind of correct, mm -hmm. um, then you have an asset, if not an advantage. I would say you really, yeah. you really, you really do. And, and by the way, not even to talk about myself, but many other colleagues and friends of mine who yeah. were, you know, autistic or, you know, somewhere traditionally on the spectrum. These were the individuals who were like at the top of my class, you know, essentially booking every, you know, booking all the courses. These are, you know, individuals who created really great companies and, you know, startups and, you know, did something, you know, incredible from that. So, uh, I mean, listen, if being, if being a, let's say a neurodivergent is, you know, my destiny, I'll take it any day of the week. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I love to hear you say it with pride because that's really, that's really what, what we're working to do here is we want yeah. neurodivergent people to, to delight in their differences, delight in their differences, encourage their differences, encourage, right. um, encourage, create and find spaces. So I talk a lot about like neurodivergent life design. Right. Um, neurodivergent self-care. So you you just talked about exercise. That's like a big neurodivergent self-care. Like I said, it's right? one of the ways to efficiently, like yeah. time-wise and energy-wise, yeah. to kind of recycle that energy. So um, yeah. you know, I could I could say you know, kind of my compass or my scope works a little bit better because otherwise, yeah. I'm going to want to kind of attack and do everything at once. Yes. So to say, yes. that's that would be the inclination. Let's say if I go like long periods of time and there's not exercising, or if I feel it's kind of too stagnant and not right. productive enough, so to say. Yeah, no, totally, totally. Yeah. And there's, there's, you know, there's so many different practices for for self care and for managing those emotions and things. And like you said, um, too, or I think you mentioned this when you were talking about ADHD. But um, what happens a lot to ADHDers and autistic people at work, um, especially when we're like we have all this energy, we have this really big project, you know, and and um, we have to know like where where to put that energy like where to put it best and like you said managing right. because we can spin our wheels so much trying to think of all the different ways to solve something all the different right. ways to attack this project right and so we find that um in those cases like that's where ask clarification questions like don't spin right. your wheels off. and so because these are some self-care practices where you know many neurodivergent people would just take the vague instruction and then spin, spin, spin and get really upset. Yeah, I'm not, I'm really not hard to cool try. with that at all. Like, cause I, I, cause you know what it is. Um, yeah. And by the way, I know I'm only speaking for myself. Yeah. I feel restless if there isn't clarity on something. Yes, but, right? Uh, yeah, but, and you'll but just try I, to create that clarity for yourself in whatever way you can. Right, right? and yeah. I will ask questions, but I will also see a lot of people just okay with that. And I think people would kind of rather stay the course and maybe, you know, screw things up so to say, yeah. rather than just kind of asking questions, kind of ask right. questions. I mean, life is a little too short to kind of feel embarrassed over asking questions. And to be honest, my experience is this, if you're thinking it, probably everybody else is thinking it too. That's so <laughs> true. That's so true. And that's one of those. So, yeah, it, so it funny. seriously I, is. Yeah. Yeah. It seriously is. It's so funny. I, I, I studied, a, you know, took social psychology class and you learn about all these it was so funny being an autistic taking social psychology because I was just like, oh, this is why every I'm like, what? <laughs> like, why are right. we doing this stuff? You know, because there's the uh, diffusion of responsibility and things. So that's why people don't um, like if you text in a group text, like, you know, people won't respond like no one will respond because somebody thinks somebody else will do it. Right. So there's that right. sort of thing where you just shift responsibility onto other people. And, you know, the same yeah, thing. Yeah, that's another thing I'm restless with as well. So yes. like I yes. if I'm I'm very uncomfortable 
waiting on other people to do things. So if I can do it, then I'm doing it and I'm doing it right now. Just do it. Because, yeah, right. because it helps me actually relax more later because otherwise yeah. I may end up kind of uh, ruminating over it, so to say. Exactly. And uh, yeah, like I said, maybe it's the direction of energy, so to say, but that is kind of the best yeah. way I can um, conceptualize, you no, know, a, a lot of that, fun. a lot of that too. And, you know, uh, I've encountered this at times, whether this was in school or professionally, where, uh, having to do things by the same process. And if it takes me longer, that frustrates me. So if I can do something and it's my way and it's faster yes, and beautiful. I have all of this free time, you know, there was a lot of situations where like, okay, you know, uh, do I have to hide this so I don't hurt other people's feelings or make people insecure? And I didn't, you know, but it's like, okay, I did this already. I did it my way. Right. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go relax now. You know, yeah. so for me, the need to kind of create like efficiency and processes are very, yes. very important for me. So if yes. I'm doing something and it's very time inefficient, it pisses me off. I'm not even kidding. It, it pisses me off. Yes. Like, I'm like, why, why am I wasting my time right now? Like I have this energy. I'm not yeah. directing it properly. Right. What the fuck? Seriously. <laughs> like, yes. yeah, I'm not kidding. Like that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's literally what's going it's through my head. Frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. And then, absolutely. you know, and then if I see others like, oh, okay, just, just, just kind of, you know, go along to do what you're told. I'm like, no, no, no this, is, this, is a waste, this is a waste of time right now. Right. Like, exactly. Why do we, why do we go to step two and three? Like, let's, let's keep going. <laughs> that's the beauty of the neurodivergent brain is I think, yeah. you know, a lot of us walk in, I mean, this is what happens. We walk into jobs and we completely redesign our roles. This happens all the time. I work with people who are, who are neurodivergent and like we're coming in and we are building a more efficient way of doing that job. We're building a new process for that job. Or maybe we're building a process when there wasn't one, like we talked about, right? Like right. there's no flow chart or whatever. Like, right. what am I supposed to do? And so we, our systemizing brains just put us at such an advantage in these positions and that should be encouraged. And I think like you're saying, if there's a different way of doing something, why not? And then people are like, just do it. And it's like, no, right. like let, let us innovate on the process. Let us, and that's how you get loyalty and commitment from employees too. They feel like they have a stake in something, right? They feel like they're contributing right. something important. Why not encourage employees to like, I think in, in my, I think in a perfect world, employees would have 20 to 30% control over like what they're doing, like of their job, at least, at least 20 to 30% to do something even maybe entirely different than their job to kind of cross train. Right. Or I think, you know, um, for example, like more companies are starting neurodiversity ERGs, which is incredible. Every company should have one. Right. Um, I consult on those, by the way, just a plug. That's great. Um, but uh, all, every company should have these neurodiversity ERGs and should be encouraging these um, these neurodivergent people to create better systems and processes where they're working. Like why not, right? right? Right. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it, it all comes back to autonomy and control, right? It's, it's like to be autonomous and to feel in control is, is important. And I think like what, for our brains, we've got to create those systems and those processes to feel in control right. of our brains or we're going to freaking not be okay. Right. Like right. We definitely, that's why we systemize things. It's for predictability and it's for comfort, you know? And by the way, I'll tell you this, and I don't know if this is something that's ever come across your head, but I've been at times in many roles because um, let's say I've created my own more efficient process to do things. Yeah. I'm kind of in this position where I'm like asking myself, okay, why is this person my supervisor? So it kind of causes a little <laughs> yeah. bit of like, I don't know if it's just competition on my part, but, and, but I, that's kind of how I end up feeling, you know, a lot yeah. of times. And yeah. by the way, not, you know, and by the way, it's, it's not everybody, but I've had times, and I think like many people where you've been able to do a job and master it, but you're also subject to the inefficient processes around you. 
So that kind yes. of call, I think for both neurotypical and neurodivergent, I think everybody probably has some sort of familiarity, you know, yep. with that. So let's say if you're efficient, if you're a very efficient neuro, a typical thinker, I am yep. quite sure you've probably encountered it. And I think if you're a, a talented neurodivergent thinker, I think you've, I think you've encountered that as well. Yeah, maybe absolutely. almost an equal, maybe almost an equal shares, I would say. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's really exciting to know too, that like, we have such assets in our employees. Like, why don't we trust them with more of the decision-making and more of the, uh, like, why don't we give them more autonomy? Because if you think about it, like that's what creates growth. And that's right. what makes people also want to try harder and want to work harder is when they right. feel like, okay, there's somewhere to go from here, but also like I'm in control. I'm in the, I'm in the driver's seat. Right. Right. I think that that that's, what's going to be the future of work and the future of organizations is we're, it's not leaders and followers, it's collaborators. Like I, yeah. so, so the way I started my company, like I'm not the CEO, like I don't even like that term. Like I, <laughs> I founded right. it, but I'm a consultant and I, I work with other wow. neurodivergent consultants and I awesome. see everybody is equal to me. And I, you know, even like, I just, it's so important to me that everybody feels valued completely equally. And yeah there's a way to do that in leadership. And that's so important to partner. And this is why I call it partnering with your employees, collaborating with your employees, because really right. in the traditional sense, um, you know, managers are often supposed to be getting the resources for you and getting the training for you. You know, they're supposed right. to be your guide and, and your resource uh, person, right? And so wouldn't their job also be to ensure your work is designed properly around you? I mean, that's, that's the person that should be responsible for this. And so when we're talking about accommodations, it's, you know, we're talking about it being a split responsibility. It's like the right. employee has to be there and the employee has to know all of their needs and how that environment needs to be designed. A lot of these are self-accommodations, but the employer, like it's your job just to, to hear, to listen, and then to provide that environment. Like that's what right. management is for. And so right. it just seems like it's one of those things. I think autistic people, we come up with these ideas and we're like, shouldn't everything just be done this way? And then people are like, oh, huh. Just nobody ever thought of it and right. nobody conceptualized it like that, right? Yeah. And, you know, by the way, like on the flip side, you know, when I've been in other, you know, management roles and I've had team members who've created, you know, better processes for things, I tend to be the one most open to it. Uh, yeah. So, you know, for me, I encourage that. And I'm also the type of person, listen, if this is an eight hour day, so to say, but you got this done in two hours, then we're done. Because my exactly. feeling is this, yeah. I want the best of you on Monday right. and Tuesday. I don't want you to be burned out or doing busy Beautiful. work. Where like, you know, otherwise you could just kind of be recharged your batteries. And, you know, and for me too, I'll tell you this, I don't mind being wrong. In fact, if I'm wrong, I want to know, but if I am right, then accept the process because, you know, if this is, if this is results oriented, then let's be efficient with uh, everything we're doing. Beautifully put. And also I'd like to add uh, something like 70% of Americans are clinically burned out nearly. So it's really bad. It's really bad right now. And so right now, especially organizations have got to pay attention to their employees. Like if they are burned out, like they need a rest. And here's the thing, like, like you're saying, why am I being punished for just being able to complete projects like 10 times more efficiently? Like, right. I don't understand that. And that's how I feel too. And that's how, I mean, I think that's why a lot of autistics find comfort in academia because yeah. in academia, like, you know, you have a due date for something, but they're not going to tell you to sit here all these minutes and, and while I watch you while you do it. Right. 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 And so Absolutely. it's like, we can kind of borrow from that practice a little bit in terms of students get their projects done. They're fantastic. They're great, whatever. But like, it, some of them took a long time. Some of them didn't take a long time, but you can't right. tell 
when the end product is great. And so why did, why are we measuring like it's micromanagement essentially? Right. It's micromanagement because um, yeah, people, people do deserve um, rest and people, and you're right. Like we're not going to get the best out of people if they aren't rested. And if they no, aren't I mean that, them. that should be very important. And when I would yeah. manage others, that is how I yeah. frame it. Like, listen, I want the best of you. So yeah. listen, we're done with it now. We're only two hours in the day. Go yeah. home. Enjoy right. the weekend, you know, with your girlfriend, boyfriend, wife, husband, because listen, exactly. if, if your personal yeah. life is better, it's, it's going to make your work life better too. So, you know, these yes. little things I think are important. And, you know, I've, you know, I butt heads with other managers too. And it's like, what, you're just gonna have everybody sit around here for six hours pretending to do work. I mean, listen, right. nobody's a, nobody's a awkward. dummy. You know, if, yeah. it, if it is at right, if, if, if we're all done, then the rest of the day is just optics. Right. Let, you know, enough with the window dressing here. Yeah. Enjoy, you know, go relax, go, go recharge. That's your, your yeah. relaxation routines are just as important. And I would Critical. say to people, if you're relaxing, then you just relax. Don't be, don't be doing this for like eight hours. Just looking at stuff, turn it off. Yes. Go outside, go out, do something where you're interacting because, because I think a lot of times when you tell people to relax, relaxation means, okay, more of the computer. But um, I don't know the science behind this, but I would imagine your brain probably still feels like you're working um, oh, in, for in, in sure. many ways. You know, Talk I don't know if it's like the blue light or retinas. just the patterns. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Burning our eyes. With right. You know, and it's this like you're right. It's this. Um, we really need to take the opportunity to reconnect with nature. We do go yeah. outside, be outside um, and, and encouraging that. Like we're, I, I loved when my professors would like hold class outside. I mean, I swear I was, Oh so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I loved that. I felt so rejuvenated and energized and you know, it's like, we need to have some of that novelty sometimes. And so it's like, why not encourage employees to just go, go work from home, go work on a patio, go like, cause Absolutely. sometimes when we're in these different places, we can have these different ideas and we can have this reinvigorated feeling of wanting to work too. It's just, you know, yeah. making people come and sit in a cubicle 10 hours a day just sounds like jail. Well, sounds it like is. Jail. And, and, it feels like jail. <laughs> And it's also in many ways, not a very, you know, efficient way to organize the day or organize yeah. roles right. and duties, especially if you have a cubicle where, you know, um, essentially you have what three walls around you and then you yeah. get out of your office chair and, you know, mosey your way to the break room or whatnot. I think that's why a lot more companies are getting rid of cubicles. They are kind yeah. of making it more of an open space kind of model it's probably to you know maybe increase work workers morale reduce anxiety and the human body has to move around and you know my feeling is this i think homo sapiens have existed for about forty thousand years listen yes. listen and, and, until about what 50 or 60 years ago everybody was standing up and moving around all the time you yep. can't really think yep. that the cubicle life is something so you know easily adaptable where yeah. this should be the norm, you know, yeah. I mean, oh my God, like all the physical problems that even come about from sitting all day, higher oh, blood yeah. pressure, sciatica, oh, yeah. back problems, problems. Yeah. you know, all different types of posture problems. And if you, yeah. you know, whether it's, whether it's anybody's ancestors, you know, we're all kind of the, we're kind of the, uh, the we're kind of the total of our, our predecessors. So to yeah. say, you know, they were all up and about doing things. Mm -hmm. Every single one of them from whatever, mm -hmm. you know, from whatever continent, you know, uh, you know, your, your ancestors come from, everybody was active. Absolutely. So, so this whole cubicle life or this cubicle farm system, it's not working. And you're it's seeing, not. especially now in 2022, 
uh, culture is adapting away from that. And I think rightfully should be. Rightfully so. I think it's about time. And it's really exciting to see um, employees. I love when the people, the grassrootsness of things. I love grassroots yeah. things. And I, I just yeah. love it because you see people now just banding together and and maybe even not banding together, but at least having all the same ideas about like, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. Right. Like people are at the end of their rope. And I think COVID, I mean, as stressful and as so horrible that it's been, it's been such an eye opener for people in terms right. of there is such a different life I could be living. I mean, there's been people that have been living in, you know, autopilot for 20, 30 years, you know, they've just yeah. been going to work, you know, doing this, doing, never having time for themselves, never always putting off, you know, rest or self care another, another right. week, another week, another week. And I think, you know, there's only so much mentally that we have space for. And I right. think the, the trauma we've all experienced collectively from COVID and from all the, I mean, things just massively changing overnight. I mean, right. yeah, we're feeling the effects of that and we're realizing life is important. I am important. My body's important. My soul is yeah. important. My mind is important. Like people are realizing their, their personal worth through this. Yeah. People are realizing their personal power through this. And right. it's, it's really exciting to see, it's, it's really exciting to see like, okay, how are companies going to respond now? Because they've got to get, they've got to get creative, right? They've got to get creative. Right. And that's when, you know, sort of at the beginning, what I mentioned was, um, um, they have to treat their employees as clients. You can't just treat your clients as clients. Like you're, you're right. every single employee you hire is a representation of your culture. Right. Seriously. Like that, that person is a representation of your culture. Right? right. And of your company, that is a client, like that is a client that you need to support that you need to make sure is understanding of their role and that you need to help and that you need to inspire. Like there's all of these things. Right. And I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's going definitely it's going to change and it's going to be an adapt or die situation. Right. That's what we're going right. to see. Right. And I have a yeah. question. So how did your journey begin uh, heading towards psychology? Like, how did you know or when did you know? Um, you were autistic. Uh, you did and thought and process things, yeah. you know, differently. And kind of what problems you encountered and what successes you were able to, you know, realize from that too. Totally. So I think so. A lot of people that go into psychology have experience with um, mental health in some certain way in their life. Is what I'm what I'm learning and what I understand right. about people that choose psychology. Um, and so I grew up with. Um, like I mentioned, I had some really severe trauma early on in life for about 10 years continuously. Um, so that was really hard. And I will say people who are, a, a lot of my clientele are autistic and CPTSD, and it is just a really bad one-two punch because um, right. CPTSD, what, what happens when people are so traumatized like that is they, they're, they're now distrusting of other people and they feel alone in the world and they feel like they can only rely on themselves, that sort of thing. So I went through all that trauma and um, at home too, um, I had have my two moms and I have my, my two brothers and yeah. each of us, uh, each my parent experienced mental health struggles and was misdiagnosed as bipolar and was over medicated. So that's kind of the, what's, it's really- And weird. I've heard of that happen like, before too. Um, yes. A lot of people um, who are otherwise maybe autistic or somewhere on the spectrum, they're diagnosed yeah. as being bipolar or something yes. kind of pretty much unrelated to that uh, totally. entirely. You're right. So, yeah. yeah. It's, it's often OCD, it's bipolar, right. it's borderline, um, all of those things. And so uh, you'll notice that the, 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 the difference between autism and all those conditions is that autism does not have a medicational medication treatment. And so sure. if you think about big pharma and things like that, like people are really incentivized to diagnose these conditions that are medicated. 
right? right? Can fix this, can charge for this and all right. that kind of stuff. Right. And so, um, yeah, so my mom was misdiagnosed um, really young and it was like, we talked earlier about like the 90s just being like quite a weird time. It's like it definitely was <laughs> right, a transitional right. state. Um, but my mom was really overmedicated and um, <clears throat> it was, it was, you know, just seeing her go through that and just like, like seeing her not really understand all these things about herself and me not understanding these things. And, and right. so that was something that I carried with me and that I, that I thought about a lot and held with me. And um, again, like siblings had some mental health stuff too. Sure. And so um, what was really interesting is I felt like uh, there's a great book called The Drama of the Gifted Child that everybody should read. Um, and they talk a lot about how children that like seem really gifted when they're young, sometimes it's because they grew up way too fast and because they kind of stepped into an adult role at a young age. Yeah. And so I was, I'll tell you, we had a family therapist, but I swear I was like the conversation facilitator in the family therapy <laughs> sessions. And like, I just always had this unique knack for, um, and that's why I didn't think I was autistic for so long because it like, yeah, under, I could systemize people, but it doesn't mean right. that I had inherent understanding of people. It was that I had right. to extremely like, and, and very specifically and uh, like, intensely observe people and think right. about it right it wasn't like a natural process for me right um and so i was so naturally like systemizing people because it was the only way i could figure out how to be and so you'll see right. with autism there's a couple of ways it can manifest there's there's a lot of us that over socialize because we're we're testing a lot it's like we're testing and seeing what works right and right. and it's funny because autism a lot of the stereotypes are that we don't socialize or we don't talk um, and there are autistics that are nonverbal. There are differing levels of support needs and right. differing levels of sensory stuff. A lot of right. times, um, you know, that's related to that. But um, yeah, so I was always kind of facilitating the family stuff. And like, I was my yeah. friend's advice givers and their relationship. I was just kind of like the people person somehow. You were kind and, of everybody's rock, it seemed. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. And so I, um, I, my mom was like, my mom's a business. I have two moms. My other mom is like tech business, like, extraordinaire and yeah. um she you know I, I kind of grew up with this there's a whole different different skill set i have because i was raised by like an, a tech executive like yeah. that's a very different kind of childhood right <laughs> um, right but, i can imagine yeah but i was sort of raised to like go you know go into business i was, I was thinking i would go into business school and i would do business yeah. things because my mom yeah. did business things and i remember i picked psychology and so many people were like that's a dumb choice they were like that's a bad choice because you can't make much money or you can't, there's not many opportunities and you're yeah. going to have to go to grad school. And I was like, uh, grad school sounds great. I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, what yeah. do you mean? <laughs> sure. Um, so I, um, I, I went to school for psychology and um, I fell in love with it. It was a very intuitive science for me because that's what I thought was so weird about it. Was I was like, I already kind of think this way. And it's because I had kind right. of already systemized people and psychology is like literally the practice of systemizing people. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like such right. a perfect perfect avenue for me and you'll see a lot of autistic people do go into these human studies type fields because we just don't know what the fuck's going on so yeah. you'll see us in um biology and in physics right. and and again like psychology there's a lot of autistics in psychology because we're like what's going on here let's talk about it let's research it right. <laughs> right right so i chose psychology and i um the professor i just happened to just absolutely love so much she's still my mentor right now dr jillian Perucci. 
um, she's who I who I, I I assisted her. I was her RA on the Africa project that we worked on together. Oh, very nice. And it was all around um, autism, and her her work is all around early developmental um, uh, research around autism. Yeah. And um, so I just think it's so funky. Like I just really was learning about autism, being autistic, and this is my story. Is like I didn't know I was autistic, even though I was writing about it. Like, wow. absolutely not. And the reason why is because of what we talked about at the beginning, Adam, it's that people um, dehumanize autism and it's very hard to find the humanness in it in any of the literature. And so like being a human reading these things, it was really like, it still felt like to me just a collection of behaviors that confused me. I mean, I, I remember always being very confused about this topic that that I was writing about too, because I was like, well, what does it feel like? And it, when you don't talk about the experiences and the like how people are feeling and what's caused it. Like there's reasons yeah. why behaviors happen. Why aren't we talking about the reasons why behaviors happen, right? Yeah. So sure. anywho, I studied, um, I studied autism and uh, I went to, I just, you know, I heard about the field of IO and I was really excited about it because I, um, I didn't want to go into clinicals because I'm very empathic and I, oh, I take okay. on people's like stories and feelings as my own. Will like, that like ride with you throughout the weekend and the week and literally like and like, like okay. you know like we were talking about neurotypicals can compartmentalize things I cannot I cannot compartmentalize things at all like I everything I experience lives with me I'm thinking it Got all it. the time it's just all within me I can't I can't separate myself into different people like I am me and I'm a lot yeah and so and so with clinical I knew that you know I'm gonna be so sad if you know something really bad happens too I was like I'm just I'm scared about that and. I just I was just right. concerned about how I would how I would handle that sort of work, um, right. and so I chose I O because I was like, holy moly, I can combine business, which I kind of already understand. I've listened to all of my mom's conference calls since I was seven. Like in the car, yeah. my mom would have all of her conference calls, and she would teach me about uh, all the things she was doing at work and what cool. they were talking about and all that kind of stuff. And so I was like, business seems like something that's interesting to me, and it seems like um, it would be great to apply psychology in the business space, right? It seems like it would be yeah. really interesting. And so I still like, you know, I went in and started my master's in IO psychology, and then I went to a PSYOP conference. It's called PSYOP, the Society for IO Psychology. And I found a panel actually there. It was called Autism at Work. And oh, wow. I went to this panel and that's where I met my really good friend, Anthony Pasilio. He was working at JP Morgan Chase at the time. Um, he's now at Computer Aid Inc. But um, so I saw him and I saw a representative from Microsoft, I believe SAP, and these these leaders, these industry leaders were talking about their autism at work programs and how, yeah. how like the results they were seeing. And so at JP Morgan Chase, they had some crazy freaking stats, Adam. It was like um, autistic employees are 90% more productive after just three months. <laughs> than a neurotypical employee. So we saw 90% productivity increase um, uh, to uh, learning their role two times faster than yeah. neurotypicals. Um, and then the third thing was turning over at 5%, only 5% yeah. turnover after five years. That's wow. nuts. And so, and by the way, yeah. oh, I'm sorry, go on. No, go ahead. By the way, go ahead. I wanted to add, so I have an article here about of essentially, you know, 20 famous people, I guess yeah. you could say, currently and throughout history. Yeah. who are or have known to be uh, autistic. So mm -hmm. uh, this is a very, very compelling list, to say the least. And I yeah. think I think we can all learn something from this. So mm -hmm. Sir Isaac Newton, mm -hmm. and by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll post the link later, but Sir Isaac Newton, Jerry Seinfeld, 
uh, Satoshi Tajiri, the creator of Pokemon, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Bill Gates, Emily Dickinson, famous poet and writer, Charles Darwin, Tim Burton. <laughs> I love his movies. Love Tim Burton. Batman, Nightmare Before Christmas, all those things when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anthony Hopkins, yep. Dan Aykroyd, and Albert Einstein. So, yep. uh, you, know, you know, I'll repeat, I'll post the link later, you know, for this. But uh, like I said, if these are people who are kind of the champions of what they yeah. do, yeah. Perhaps divergent neurodivergent thinking should be better encouraged. Yeah. Uh, you know, to say the least. Uh, I recall hearing about Albert Einstein that uh, I think throughout school. I think he's he was, Jewish too, right? He is Jewish, actually. Yeah. yeah. He came from Germany. Um, he actually was not speaking until anywhere between five to seven years old. So really, like the first part of his childhood, yeah. he was not speaking. So a lot of times in school, his kind of his teachers dismissed him as being. You know, yeah. very slow or very deficient or whatever terminology they used back then. And now you look in the context of things of all he accomplished. Oh my so, God. I so I kind of wonder, you know, at, at times, uh, is the stigma attached because are a are people afraid to look in the mirror, which I think is very much the case with a lot of people, or b um, it's just easier. You don't have to think too much. Or is it, you know, something beyond that? Maybe, uh, you know, I think there's I a think, C. I think the is C there is conformity. C. Is, there, is there some sort of conformity or maybe even resentment towards, you know, something that others see in these kind of people? So there is kind of yeah. a need, human need, maybe to push, uh, push the competition down if you see it. Totally. Yeah, no, that's absolutely part of it. And I just want to add to Elon Musk is autistic too. Right. And, right. I heard about um, that too. Elon Musk, similarly to um, Albert Einstein, I remember reading reading an article about Elon Musk and he said, he didn't talk until much later either, but he said the reason he didn't talk is he didn't think people were saying things that were very interesting. But that was, <laughs> but that was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. That's hilarious. He just didn't want yeah, to he's talk. Probably right. he he's probably right. <laughs> he's probably right. I don't want to do it. <laughs> right. Screw that. <laughs> he's like, no one's really that fascinating. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, but you know, you, you watch his interviews. Yeah. He says very impactful profound things and you can tell he's he very so thoughtful processing going on right before he says something oh, yeah. so uh you know i've seen ma many i guess you could say whether they were very informative or even inspirational talks or interviews by him he deeply contemplates what he yeah. says not from like what people are going to think about me but i really do feel when he says something he yeah. tries to make it as accurate and yep. as kind of surgical as possible. So yep. like I like I've watched Elon Musk. I never thought anything he said was um unnecessary or just kind of verbose for the sake of being verbose. He I right. I, I get the impression from him he says what he thinks is going to be spot on totally. for either the question or issue he's talking because uh I feel like I watch him and he thinks before he says something. I I could appreciate that. He does, <laughs> you know, yeah. and then he says it. And I'm like, wow. And it's like, so you're right. Yeah. It's profound. Yeah. And here's, a, here's another accommodation people can, can write down here, um, increased processing time. So there's a lot of companies where you'll be pushed to give an answer on the spot or something, right? Like yeah. the manager is like, tell me now what you're going to do or do this. And it's like, no, I mean, there's value in like, shouldn't we value a really well thought out answer and a really Absolutely. contemplative answer versus what's the quickest and fastest thing I can say to impress this person right now. Right? right. So that's another thing that we need to be thinking about is giving people time to process. And like, really, that's how you can make sure people are on the same page, too, is like, 
um, a lot of what we talk about too with autistic people is like, write down what you want instead of just saying it once broadly, like write it right. down, right. write it down, send me an email of, of the task and then let's discuss it. But, but when things are written down, like that's the, the Bible now, right? It's like, that right. is the text That is the text we can refer to and we can make sure we're on the same page. And, and I just think, you know, people think that when people are slow to respond that they're dumb and it's not true. There are a lot no. of people that are slow to respond because there's a big, there's gears turning and turning and turning. There's a lot happening up here and right. it's working to, to search all of the ways that this can be answered. And then right. that's like what's happening in the divergent brain. And that's why sometimes we speak slower. We speak in different cadences or we, we need sure. a second, you know? And so that's a way that it's actually an accommodation some people need because people can think that that means we're dumb. Yeah. And by the way, don't get me wrong. I think, you know, having a, an answer on the spot is good. Let's say in some sort of urgency or exigency sure. or emergency, sure. but like, you know, otherwise I think 80% or 90% of times, like, well, do you want the witty bullshit answer? Or do you want the good answer? Right. You know, like exactly. that's, you know, I, I tell people that like, which, which one do you want? <laughs> right. I can give right. you, I can give you a very nice sounding quip right now. If that's what makes you feel better. Sure. But if you want the good answer, I think, you know, a planning and preparation is, is always necessary. And that's a beautiful way like people can phrase it. So a lot of what, how we're going to get these accommodations is like, we need to accommodate ourselves. And so right. in the conversation, like you can literally say like, this is my first feeling is this, and you can say something and then you can say, right. but I'd like some more time to get back to you with a more complete answer. Right. So it's also kind of creating, and this is a lot of what I'm doing for neurodivergence and through my TikTok, right? Is I make videos of feelings or experiences. Talk or about your TikTok. You have an exceptionally yeah. large following. <laughs> Yeah. 300k plus like what's the what's the current number it's by 351 the way? right now 351. Wow. Awesome. yes thank you and it just grew 50k over in like a month because i started i just started discussing cptsd on there wow. and that video is like that i mean it's a three minute video which is it's hard to get viral videos on tiktok that are really long but right. it's long and it has like 500,000 views or 600,000 now or something it's like it's climbing all the time um but I mean, it's just really exciting, this access to information we have now. And like, I wouldn't have known I was autistic if TikTok didn't exist, truly. Wow. Um, and um, it's through stories of people who experience conditions that we learn about conditions. Right. That's how it works. I mean, stories, sharing of experience, sharing of barriers and successes and all of these things, like a lot of us we hear someone else's story and then finally like we have context for our story. And so, right. yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And so I, I really, you know, a lot of my work is, is helping us to figure out what are these scripts that we can say to explain ourselves in a way that other yeah. people can understand. Right. Because that's, what's going to build the empathy between us what? and our typicals. Right. And I have a question about that. So how were you able to grow your following to that large of a number? 351 K. <laughs> and by the way, nuts, do you think right? it has, does it have anything to do with the fact that you're comfortable to talk about this? Because yes, I would imagine even in 2022, yeah. it's not an easy subject matter for people no. to just reveal no. um, you know, to the world, either professionally or in their personal lives. Absolutely. You know? It's still so misunderstood. Absolutely. Yeah. I felt, honestly, I felt like I had, um, I honestly, uh, I don't know. It's so crazy. TikTok has like created a bridge between me and a community and, and me and a, a new community within myself, a new love yeah. within myself because the TikTok felt like the only place I could be myself. Right. So really, it was the only place where I, I felt like I, I kind of talk about it as like I was just kind of screaming into the void. Like, is anyone else doing this? Like, are you doing right. this? 
But um, how I grew my following is I started I started the TikTok to discuss specifically autism in the work context. Um, yeah. But then that, you know, as I was doing my own work and research more into adult autism, because I was learning about, you know, in Zambia and right. in my undergrad, it was all childhood experiences. And a lot of people characterize autism by childhood examples because there's not autism is supposed to be diagnosed. It's a developmental condition, right? So it's a neuro neurodevelopmental condition. And so it's supposed to be diagnosed very young. Like you're supposed to diagnose it between, you know, doctors are taught to diagnose it between like two and six ish is when you start to see more traditional signs. Um, but, uh, and, and so the reason why we don't have a lot of adult resources is practitioners aren't really given adult resources. I'm not even kidding. Right. I mean, the, a lot of the autism assessments adults are going through are the child versions of assessments because right. there's not really standardized ways of assessing adults. And there, I mean, there's more coming out now and there's, there's some really innovative practices like embrace-autism.com. Dr. Natalie's practice is fantastic. It's how I got diagnosed. Um, wow. but, um, yeah, it's so it's so misunderstood. And I started to learn about um, women who had been late diagnosed. So there was an article I found and it was like the experiences of 30 autistic women diagnosed late in life. And um, I made a video about it and it got like 250,000 views, like pretty wow. fast. And I was like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is a topic of interest. And so um, like there, you know, there were a couple of people there. There are other autistic TikTokers. Um, but there's not a lot of um, autistic, like, IO psychologists or educators or, you know what I'm saying? Um, there's not a lot of that angle. But also, I think what was really attractive about my TikTok is people were, like, literally on a journey with me. Right. Because after I started looking more into the female presentation, I was like, oh, damn. Like, I started reading women talk about it. And I was like, yeah, that's how I feel. And at the time, I was working at a neurodiversity consultancy as well. And my boss was like you're autistic. And I was like, I think you're right. And so this just comes back to like, with mental health conditions, how would we know we experience it without a, a human and a relatable story? Right. Right. It's through these stories that a lot of people figure out, like also with trauma and abuse, it's like through store other people's stories that you figure out, Oh, that was abuse. I didn't know that was abuse. Right. right. So just another example, you need to hear these accounts. Right. And so um, these case studies. And so I started to, <laughs> Uh, people were asking me as I was talking about autism and women and just I was regurgitating some of the research and trying to make it more relatable for people to like right. read research and stuff like that. Um, and someone said, can you post a test for it? And I was like, oh, wow. interesting. And um, yeah. I was like, wow, okay. And so I actually like started videoing a test and I was going through it and then I clicked submit and it said like, you're autistic. And I was like, <laughs> oh, wow. And that was really the confirmation. And I literally have a video of that. Like I have a video of it. And so people um, started to follow me so early on in my journey. And you can tell throughout my TikTok, like the complexity and the understanding of autism just iterates right. itself over time. You can see if you go watch my earliest videos, I'm keeping things much more general. But um, it's yeah, I mean, it's just I think the reason why the following is so big and it just and why every video has engagement is these are autistic people, right? And right. autistic people find a subject of interest and they they freaking like we're specialists, right? And so it's yeah. like I would get a new follower and then that one follower would like every video, right? Yeah. Every single video. And so I'm not, you know, like other TikTokers where maybe they're having one video go viral and not the other ones. Every single video I had was doing well because yeah. it was building a universe of understanding around yeah. this experience. And also for people who are undiagnosed. Um, and also I have a big following of people who are di diagnosed and who 
finally feel like I'm giving them verbiage for it because they didn't right. have the verbiage for it. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, you know, I cover, um, I think the reason why the following is so big is I'm, I'm a very innovative content creator. So I don't, I try to innovate every time I make a new video. I think it's just kind of also like the, <laughs> the, it's like, there's, there's, there's advantages to a neurodivergent brain and there's the whole, I can't do anything twice because I don't want to repeat myself thing. Right. So, right, right. <laughs> you know, so you're just like constantly moving forward and trying to openly, you're like, I can make it more complex and more complex and more complex, yeah. right? But that thing. Um, but yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm starting to distinguish between autism and, you know, my other video that went extremely viral more recently is autism versus narcissism. A lot of autistic people think that they're narcissists for a long time before they find out they're autistic or- Can you explain that? Autism versus yeah. narcissism, because mm, totally. uh, narcissism is a theme that I see more and more on social media when it comes yeah. to, you know, relationships, uh, you know, with the significant other relationships with parents. Uh, could you explain um, that context, narcissism versus autism? Totally, totally. Um, so where I'll talk about, so I'll just talk about, you know, it's, that's a really complex question. So I'll talk about, yes. uh, it, it, I'll maybe talk most, about two uh, things. No, you're good. I'll just talk about um, some different behaviors that um, autistic people uh, do that look like narcissism but aren't. And so <clears throat> one of them is that um, we tend to, um, you know, we're very, very, we we communicate differently and we love the subjects we love and we info dump and all these things. And so sometimes it can look like we are all in, inclusive, all involved in ourselves. Right. And we only care about ourselves and things like that. But no, it's that we have um, more narrow and deep interests. And so that's one of the things is a lot of people think like, you're just talking about yourself all the time. And like, you know what I'm saying? You're just talking about things you're interested in and stuff like that. And it's like, no, this is just sort of like, you know, these are, th this is my way of being. <laughs> and it's not that I'm not interested in, in you and your things. It's that I need some help to understand the context about why you're interested right. in things or what you like and, and stuff like that. So we just need a little bit more assistance there. Whereas narcissists right. really don't, yeah, I mean, they just are very, the grandiosity thing, it's the grandiosity right. thing that, it's like autistic people are actually competent in these things and are, are maybe obsessed with these things just because it's an interest in like a personality right. type of thing. But narcissists will, you know, I'm the best, I'm, I know everything, I know this, I know that, but maybe there's not like meat behind that. So is there like, so like the parse it is one based on sincerity and the other is based on kind yeah. of deception. So like yeah, if somebody exactly. autistic is going on about something they love, that's mostly because they're very interested uh, and they're very yes. almost uh, immersed the in it. Yeah. The intention. And it seems like with narcissism, this it's very uh, deceptive and self-serving. So it's I think maybe it's based on more how other people perceive them rather exactly. than where I think maybe, I would imagine with narcissism, I think there's probably a lot of self-deception involved too. You probably don't really get oh, to know hugely. yourself. If let's say, you know, let's say if uh, for instance, you're really into cryptocurrency and mm -hmm. there's another woman who's also very much into you know cryptocurrency so let's say if you were to go and let's say you know digress expand upon it in a conversation let's say it's like a five or six hour conversation yeah that might just stem from you kind of just the wheels going all the time just yeah. getting deeper and deeper into the subject matter so yeah. that might just be an expression of just enthusiasm exactly but some, but some people that. might just really get into it because it's the cool thing right now so okay maybe this is what makes me seem interesting you know sure. right now it's like so. more of a, a social projection it's a great right. great thing right that's a great way of describing it um and how dr sam bachman describes it is um a true versus a false self and so yeah. 
what 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 create we didn't talk about too like the e like the etiology of autism or sorry of um of narcissism because um sure. what creates narcissism is someone is not being seen properly right so that's really right. all in all the person is not seen properly when they're younger so that means there's two ways that can happen um when kids are over idealized and when kids are are um uh put on a pedestal and you know you're so great you're so amazing but there's not right. like what's the why right? right um it leads to uh a people not you know overinflated sense of ego it leads to an overinflated ego right. and right. that that causes narcissism um another thing is just severe abuse and so when i mean i'm talking like really severe like physical abuse bad sure um often is what causes narcissism it's because you know i can't trust anyone but me i am alone in this universe essentially right. and i have to create this false self to be loved and it's this idealized it's what happens is the the narcissist the, the brain believes i am not lovable i am so small i am not okay. you know what i mean so, so like it's a really construct it's maladaptive or... yeah. yeah it's, it's entirely crazy. maladaptive but it's rooted in trauma and so what, like sam vacken is changing the world because he's talking about autism or sorry um, narcissism is a post-traumatic stress condition instead of a personality disorder. And if we view it it's through that lens, I know it's really brilliant. If we view it through that lens, it's treatable, right? Because trauma right. is treatable. If we understand the trauma, if we understand what's maladaptive, if we work to understand that, then we can, then we can accept our true self. And the right. narcissist is projecting perfection because it hates its true self, right? And, and uh, every, okay. in every sense of it, I mean, narcissists are very self-hating, self-loathing, very sad inside. And right. they're they're grasping at any sense of control through manipulation that they can, because right. they didn't have any of that. Like as a like they're they're creating their own universe because they feel so unsafe in the real world because they had such horrific beginnings. Um, so that's you know, it's amazing how cool. much damage bad parenting has caused. You know, throughout history. Oh and my in, God! Yes. And individuals <laughs> like you could you could trace things like narcissism. You yeah. could trace racism. You could trace yeah. so many bad things that just terrible parenting. It's, I know. it's it's really you know it's it's really incredible yeah exactly and it all comes back to actually um beyond parenting because it goes into every context right it goes yeah. into the school context and the relational it's like it's boundaries it's a boundary issue right yeah. it's a boundary issue people have to understand the boundaries within which they operate and what's what's okay what's not okay right um, and when there's no boundaries there's so much ambiguity it's so muddy and 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 yeah of course you'd have kind of a defective way of operating Right, right, right. So Makes I think sense. boundaries are the most important thing ever. Incredible. And by the way, um, this has been an excellent conversation. And and to wrap up the show, um, I do have a very important question to ask you. Okay. So, so I hope for I can answer people, uh, I think you will. <laughs> I think you will. <laughs> so for people who are struggling or at least trying to figure out if they have autism, yes. based on you know collective experiences between yep. childhood in adulthood, mm -hmm. listening to the show, listening to your input, what would you suggest as far as how they start that journey? And by the way, I think a lot of it has to do with healing inside and out, because I'm sure there's yes. kind of, uh, I think there has to be a degree of self-consciousness, maybe mm -hmm. even self-hating behaviors, you know, mm -hmm. so to say. So oh, you know, for somebody, for somebody who's, you know, brave enough to disclose this and reveal this self, you've obviously helped out a lot of people. Without yes. a doubt, people probably yes. wouldn't otherwise do this. So yep. what advice would you give to, you know, that person yep. starting off in this journey of self-discovery and accepting yes. it and maybe even, you know, 
encouraging it and uh you could even say being proud of it and looking at it as an asset yeah. in their life. Yeah, beautiful question, beautiful question. Um, so I will say um, something that's really important, especially early on in the journey and really at any point yeah. of the journey is knowing uh, what resources are good and what are bad, right? Because yeah. in, in order to heal, like you've gotta be reading, you can't be reading like the really sad articles about autism, right? Like that's not gonna be helpful. Right, yes. <laughs> so, and so yeah. that's the issue. I mean, even was my issue early on in being diagnosed. The reason why I st I'm starting a company and I did the TikTok and everything is I'm like, where's the relatable information about right. autism that's like empowering? Yeah. And that is story. That's important. And what's empowering right there? Yes. What's yeah. empowering versus yeah. disempowering. Right. And so I will say my favorite source is embrace-autism.com. It's my favorite source. And there you can take, uh, you can actually get diagnosed with autism or ADHD, but you can take um, uh, you can take all the assessments that you would be taking right. in your in your formal assessment. She makes those accessible. She is really, Dr. Natalie Engelbrett has um, changed the, the lives of millions of people, um, right. truly. I, I know this because I broke her website several times. At least one time I broke her website by sending so many people there. I had a video get 2.5 million views and I linked it to her website and like it crashed. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, um, I, if people would go to my TikTok and follow me at actually Alex um, with three underscores in between, I have a link tree right. and you can I can give you the link tree link Adam because that has it's the yes, everything you give need me to that yeah. and I'll repost yeah. it on my stuff. Yeah, because in there you can see um, there's 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 stories in there there's um, there's links to every single to all of these different articles about all of these different things you can read about CPTSD you can read about. Right. Um, the DSM-1 criteria in a, in a positive light. You can read the reframing of it, which is really what will help people identify with it. Um, so I have so many great resources in that link tree, and I think wow. that would be an amazing start. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll repost that for sure. And listen, Alex, it was an absolute pleasure having you on today. Yeah, this was such a fantastic conversation. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. And I would have to say, even beyond the great insights you provided i think for people listening to this i think you've may have uh, done some done some good and helped out uh, many from you know oh. disclosing this because i think yeah. that's what it takes a lot of times you yeah. know if you're able to comfortably talk about it i think yeah. it does embolden and it does inspire others to you know uh go and you know start troubleshooting but also yeah being able to kind of learn to live with it and maybe even and perhaps be empowered you know, design around it. it, design because with I, it in mind. Right. Yeah. Because let's say if this was some sort of interview or, you know, uh, some sort of radio program from 30 years ago, this might have not have been the most uh, popular conversation to have to look at this as an asset, to be empowered by it. True. And I think part of it has to do with where culture was and maybe where uh, scientific research was about it. But, you know, as we've all discussed on the show, many of the great people throughout history, and I'm talking about Nobel Prize winners. Literally. I'm talking about scientists. <laughs> Literally, yeah. these are names that you all know. And these yes. are all people who had different ways of conceptualizing the world and abstract thinking that really came up with out-of-the-box creations, solutions, and achievements for things. Yeah. So listen, um, be sure to check out Alex's content. Uh, like I said, it has a huge following. This is 351K plus and growing, I would imagine. <laughs> so uh, for people, you know, willing, and I think people who are ready to take that step, check out Alex's content. I'll be posting yeah. it up on my social media as well. 
Yeah. And, you know, Alex, uh, I definitely have to have you back on for a follow-up totally. episode. This, yeah, was, this was a great episode. And I think with the way the future is uh, kind of coming about, being able to harness the talents of everybody, wherever they are, uh, neurologically speaking, whether they're neurotypical or neurodivergent, yeah. you know, people have to know how to play to their advantages. People know how to have to know how to leverage yes. their advantages. So if you are neurotypical yes. or if you are neurodivergent, Either way, you know, this is life. Nobody gets out, you know, without a scratch. Yep. So you got to yep. know how to learn how to leverage yep. really the hand that you're playing with right now. So, you know, even if it is, let's say, neurodivergent, just keep in mind, you have a genuine set of skills and assets. Yeah. You know, you just got to learn how to play it right. That's absolutely. my take from this anyway. So No, you're absolutely right. And quoting Kanye West, better have a strategy or you could become a statistic. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Listen, hey, I'll drink to that. So. <laughs> and one other thing I would love to plug, um, I am doing, uh, right now I'm accepting positions to take presentations, to do presentations for universities and for awesome. corporations. So I've done this quite a few times and, um, it's a great stigma smasher. And, um, right. again, you know, it, it really helps to educate all. So the way I've been doing this is I do, um, organization wide presentations where everybody comes, and right. it's, it's, it highlights them. It's kind of like a manager training and an employee training in one. Wow. Um, but it's really fantastic. And people learn how, learn how to do these things that we're talking about. They learn, they learn to see themselves a little bit differently and see their neighbors a little bit differently. And um, it's a really fantastic talk. So I am, um, I, I would love to, if you're somebody that works at an organization and is looking for a speaker um, to come in for Autism Awareness Month, uh, that's April. So I, I, am, I am doing those and I find them to be really beneficial for people that have, have attended. A lot of people are finding out they're autistic through those presentations. Right. And that's excellent, by the awesome. way. If you have like some sort of promo content for that, please send that my way. Yeah, I will. I can help Absolutely. get the word out for that. You know, yeah, more totally. Than, you know, more than happy to. Thank you so much. I would love to. Thank you, yeah, Adam. Anytime. Thanks for Listen, having me. Alex, well, thank you for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure. Let's have a follow-up episode to this in the near future. And, totally. you know, I think given how chaotic the world is in 2022, you know, like yeah. I said, we got to figure out, uh, people have to figure out in the best way, most efficient way possible. And I know I talk about efficiency all the time, but seriously, hey, work smarter, not harder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how do you play to your advantages with whatever hand you have? With whatever, whatever, wherever you are on the spectrum, neurotypical or neurodivergent, you know, let's let's learn how to empower and give people tools. Love so it. let's yeah. let's make that follow up episode about yeah. that, and let's get into the weeds even further. That's a great that. idea. That's a fantastic idea. Let's definitely do that. I'm down. All right. well, Alex, listen. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thank okay. you so much for coming on, and we will definitely be talking soon. Yes. Thank you, Adam. So fantastic. Thank Talk you. to you soon. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye.